You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Moe Gamer podcast. Uh, I'm Pete Davison from moegamer.net, and as usual, I'm joined by my good friend Chris Kasky from mrgildapixels.com. How are you doing today? Oh, just peachy. It's actually a nice day outside today. So. Mm. Yeah, our, uh, our, the uh, sort of newsworthy heat wave we've had seems to have passed now. It's it's just gone back to sort of what you'd expect summer in the UK to be like now instead of uh, whatever tropical nonsense we were suffering a f- so, few weeks back. So just mildly awful, but not completely awful. <laughs> it, it's not even really awful now. It's just sort of the, like it's blue sky, but there's a few clouds up there. There's a gentle breeze. It's just nice and warm. It's not the kind of weather where you walk outside and you're immediately drenched in your own sweat without having mm. done anything, uh, which is what it was a few weeks back. But uh, we've had a, a few rainstorms since then, and that's uh, that's helped things out a bit. So good yeah right okay so uh today's episode we're finally getting around to uh one of our long promised evercade episodes so we're going to be talking a bit about the evercade system and uh some of the highlights from the launch library that we've explored so far um but before that we've got our usual uh two parts that come before that so we're going to talk a bit about the news and then we're going to talk a bit about what we've been playing recently uh, now it's been a fairly moribund collection of news recently hasn't it so uh there's, uh, I mean, there's not a always... ton to talk about but we've got a few stories and i'm sure we'll manage to rattle Stre- on for 45 minutes regardless I was, so I was gonna say, we'll stretch an hour <laughs> we'll stretch an hour out of this car this is this garbage <laughs> that i've managed to cobble together <laughs> uh, all right Okay, so uh, first thing I wanted to mention was that P-Cube announced um, a game that they're working on, uh, which is a new survival horror game called Tormented Souls, which is very, very heavily inspired by the original Resident Evil and Alone in the Dark. And indeed, if you look at it, the whole aesthetic is very similar to uh, Resident Evil Remake specifically. It's got that sort of... um, slightly desaturated look um and the pre-rendered backgrounds and the fixed camera angles and all that sort of thing this this looks like it's going to be great so i'm looking forward to seeing uh what comes of this there's a teaser website up for that now uh there's a trailer uh, and a bit of information about the game so if you're interested in classic survival horror sort of um uh sort of before resident evil 4 style survival horror then yeah. this is definitely going to be one you want to keep an eye on i very um, much it, got like silent hill 3 like ps2 era silent hill vibes off it like i'm yeah kind of yeah, the sort of design of the main character is vaguely reminiscent of uh, of heather isn't it and uh yeah there's obviously some weird stuff going on so yeah looks uh, looks pretty cool this is due to come out on steam and consoles in 2021 you can it's already on the steam store so you can add it to your wish list um and that's uh, that's apparently quite helpful for developers if you do that because it helps them get more exposure on the steam store as well so the more people wish list it the more people get the get get it shown to them through steam's algorithm and so on so if this is something that you're interested in and that you believe in and you want more people to know about then be sure to wish list that uh, on steam even if you plan on picking up the console version uh so yeah not a ton more to say on that as yet but it, it certainly looks very cool um and we'll be seeing that next year all being well uh next thing we've got is that a little while back sega announced that they're doing one of these mini arcade things specifically uh inspired by their astro city arcade cabinet uh we've got a release date for that now it's december the 17th of 2020 um that's uh, confirmed for japan at the moment there's no word on a worldwide release i don't think is there 
Yeah, I, I don't. Like I it. don't think so. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's set for December the twenty. Uh, sorry, December the seventeenth of twenty twenty. There'll be twelve thousand eight hundred yen, which is I don't know about one hundred twenty, hundred thirty dollars or so. Um, it's going to have uh, thirty six games on it. Um, they haven't revealed all of them yet, but there's uh, a nice selection of Sega classics on there. So we've got Bonanza Brothers, Column. We've got Cotton on there, which is particularly noteworthy. There's some bangers uh, on here, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's some real cool stuff here. So it includes some stuff that we've we've seen on a lot of Sega compilations before, but also some stuff we don't see quite so often as well. Um, isn't this the this is the first time Golden Axe Revenge of Death Adder's had a home release, isn't it, I think? Which one Someone is said, Revenge of Death Adder? Is that the, that, the, the last? I, I can't remember. I'm not, I'm not very well up on my gold. I'm not very well well up on my golden axe, but I know, I know that this is this is the one that has never had a home port. Um, no, yeah, the duel is the fighting game. Yeah. yeah, Revenge of Death Adder is the last arcade beat 'em up, and yes, that's never had a home. That's never been available in the home port. Yeah. So, so yeah, that and Cotton are two uh, particular reasons that people are excited for this uh, because co- also Dark Edge is on this, which is kind of cool. I don't know that one. What's what's that all about? So Dark Edge is a curious but not particularly good fighting game of the early 32-bit era okay with massive beautiful sprites right that do this weird thing where they like rotate around each other okay. and like the backgrounds are like parallax and there's a lot of like major like zoom in zoom out um it's beautiful and cu- like it's not like i said it's not particularly good but it's a it's a real interesting curiosity in terms of like development tricks and like visual presentation of that specific era of arcade games yes um very much worth looking at also this thing's loaded with monster boy stuff yes yeah i mean wonder wonder boy wonder boy stuff um some of like some of which aren't even the arcade game like monster land is on here and that's not really a yeah oh no that is one of the arcade ones i'm sorry that's the first arcade one yeah um this is great. Wonder Boy 3 and Monster Lair, which is the weird shmup one mm-hmm. <laughs> that nobody ever talks about <laughs> is on here. Uh, some of the great Shinobi stuff. Like, this is just cool. And, like, there's little accessories for it. You can get a little stool for it yeah. and a stand to put it on so it looks just like the arcade setup. Yeah. 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 Apparently, the, 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 uh, the stand for it as well you can use as a coin bank as well. So you can actually put coins into it. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Which is awesome. Yeah, so so this is cool. Like I say, you you may well end up having to import this if you want it, but it's um yeah, it's certainly looking very cool. Um hundred and twenty dollars, not a terrible price for this sort of thing, particularly considering it's it's a, a pretty cool display piece as well as as well as being a functional uh, mini console as well. And uh, presumably That's... there'll be there'll be T V out on this as well, like on the uh, the Neo Geo thing as well. So if you don't want to play yeah. on a tiny screen you can do. Cool. That's fairly price parable with the Geo one too. I think the Geo one was a hundred or a hundred. Yeah, I yeah, sounds about right. At launch, so yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Um, it is the tenth anniversary of the Neptunia series, um, and as part of the celebrations for that, Compileheart revealed the first Neptunia game for PlayStation Five. So uh, I finally got a reason to buy a PS Five, um, <laughs> which is. Uh, uh, so this new game is going to be called GoGo 5D Game Neptune Reverse. Um, not a ton of details about it as yet, um, but it's sounding like um, 
this is going to be a new mainline release in the series in as much as the series even has a mainline anymore um <laughs> but uh yeah so uh, there's a five in the title um which i guess sort of makes sense uh if you ignore the fact that uh neptunia v2 could also be read as neptunia 7 because it was actually the seventh neptunia game in the main lane uh but also the fourth and you see how we, you see how people get confused about the main line of this series now <laughs> i'm just i'm just excited to buy a ps5 to play a neptunia game on the ps5 that will finally look as good as a ps4 game. <laughs> yeah i'm just i'm just kidding i had to throw a dig (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um i I don't think there's really any any even sort of screenshots or footage of this yet we've it's just been announced that it exists um but if you're a neptunia fan um go and have a look at compile hearts uh neptunia 10th anniversary page Uh, so there's a whole bunch of um cool stuff on there so there's messages from some of the voice actresses they did an interview with uh tsunako and the the series creator on twitch as well uh, idea factory international got involved with that as well um so there's a, ho- a whole bunch of stuff on there to celebrate the anniversary so if you're uh, if you're a fan of the series uh, go and have a look because there's a lot of cool stuff all right uh going back to um sort of home console arcade things uh there's uh, a mvsx neo geo system uh, planned for launch in 2020 apparently um, and there'll be $450 and $500 options, uh, depending on what you have on it. Um, so this is a very authentic-looking Neo Geo-style uh, cabinet. It's designed for sort of uh, tabletop and bar-top use, so it doesn't have, like, the, the bottom unit and you put it on something. Um, it's 25 inches tall, weighs 28 pounds, and has a 17-inch screen with 1280 by 1024 resolution, so it should look very nice. Um, it doesn't support cartridges, so it's just, you can just play the built-in games on it, but almost certainly someone will have hacked it within a week of it being launched, so uh, if you want to add other stuff to it, you probably can do. Um, there's an additional base it's you can get for it, and you can get the whole the whole shebang together for $500 if you do want a full-size arcade unit as well. So, I mean, there's 50 games on this thing. It's it's pretty pretty robust. Yeah. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it's mostly the same games that were on the little little tabletop one, yeah. the little toy one. But um, you know, you can get all six of the first Metal Slug titles for. Yep. You know, <laughs> Samurai Showdown one through five and five special, um, Sengoku one through three. I know we talked about how great Sengoku three is in our beat 'em up episode. Yep. Savage Rain, Kazuna Encounter is a $500 game in and of itself. <laughs> um, so this is cool. Um, I normally don't care for these. Um, these have been around for a while now. Um, these tabletop arcade units with the expandable bases. Uh, I don't know if they've been in your region, but they've been in the States for a while. Like Konami got on board with them, so you can get like the Turtles beat-em-ups and stuff. Yeah, there was uh, what they call the, in, ar- in the arcade these... one-up ones, I think. The people were going apeshit for yeah, a while back. Yeah, but, uh... so... I get, I, but this is the Neo Geo, so I care. Yeah, I get um, the impression <laughs> this 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 is intended to be a slightly more premium model than those as well, because it's a, quite a bit more expensive than the arcade one-ups, isn't it? I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this has got my attention more so than the little little desktop ones mm-hmm. did, because I can specifically see where I'd put this in, <laughs> my, in, my, in my house, and uh, I don't know. I just anything Neo Geo related, I get excited about. It's just there's something about the specific appearance of the Neo Geo arcade cabinet that I love from a design aesthetic. That red, that 
bright red with the white. Yeah. And the the diagonal striping on the joystick panel. Yeah. Like just it look it looks like a proper cabinet, and I just get excited about. That. Yeah. Oh, it gets your attention, doesn't it? Like it's all primary colors on there. Like you've got you've got red, yellow, green, blue bit of white so it's, like it's all bright primary attention grabbing colors so yeah you can you can see how it would have grabbed people's attention in the arcade and it'll be very very striking to have in your home as well but uh, i don't think i've got anywhere i could put one of those unfortunately i mean i could put it on my dining table but i don't think my wife would talk to me again after that <laughs> <laughs> i have been in talks with a guy in my area to potentially get an actual mvs cab so i don't maybe i'll hold off mm. <laughs> Because that's starting to look like it might be a reality. Oh, that's exciting. Cool. Well, so, uh, October 2020 for this, uh, from the look of things. Um, yeah, and the full game list is announced now, so you can go and find that that full list on there. Like I said, there's a lot of King of Fighters, a lot of Metal Slug, a lot of Samurai Showdown. Um, you've got uh, Shock Troopers on there as well. Not the second one, though. Um, and some stuff that I'm not super familiar with as well, but... Yeah, the, the the main attraction for this is probably going to be all the all the fighting games on it, as it often is for the Neo Geo stuff. But uh, yeah, some good stuff on there. All right, uh, moving along, um, we've got a release date. Well, we've got a, a vague release date for um, Oceanhorn Two, uh, which was previously uh, an Apple Arcade exclusive this is a sort of zelda style game the first ocean horn was was um available pretty widely but ocean horn 2 started on apple arcade and it's now coming to switch in um fall autumn of this year so um yeah i don't know a ton about this series but uh, I, I i know you're quite taken with it so yeah so I, I love the original ocean horn um i believe we talked about it back when we did our episode focused on games with a unique toy like yes aesthetic. i think we did yeah um because the original ocean horn is very much just a it's basically a third party new zelda yeah. game uh from from the f overhead perspective but it, it, there's just something about its graphics that it, it has a very like tangible physical feel to it mm. and so from a whole presentation perspective i found it very like endearing and kind of irresistible and um Oceanhorn 2 is just like a full transformation of uh, one's classic top-down Zelda feel to like the Zelda 64 feel. Yeah. We've now got like an open world third person kind of feel. Um, third person, um, you know, like behind behind the back camera when you pull like a bow and arrow or a slingshot out. Mm -hmm. Like It's a really lovely looking game. And it just kind of continues that look by having a very polished western cg look it just feels kind of like a um i want to say like a disney cg movie like it looks yeah. like a playable frozen right like the everything has this very smooth toy-like sheen to it and i'm just very taken with the way it looks and it appears to play very smooth and it's kind of got a charming aesthetic and i, I don't know i just i enjoyed the first one enough to get super excited about this so and it belongs on the Switch, because yeah. everything yeah, does. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, talking of everything belonging on the Switch, Pikmin 3 is coming to the Switch uh, in a deluxe form. So uh, not only is this a port of the Wii U game, it's also some additional content in there that features Louis and Olimar in sort of prologue and uh, epilogues as well. Um, so you can play the, the campaign in two-player co-op. 
Um, there's new difficulty options, a hint system, and all sorts of things as well. Pikmin 3 is actually the only Pikmin game I've played to date, but I, I enjoyed that a lot on Wii U. So again, it's good to see it uh, getting a wider release on um, on Switch. Um, and I'm in the opposite bag. Like Pikmin 3 is the only Pikmin game I haven't played. <laughs> so, so I'm very excited about this because... I haven't played it. Yeah, um, this is this is going to be quite interesting though, because Pikmin Three was one of those games that made quite effective use of the gamepad touchscreen, because there was a lot of sort of uh, flicking things around and twanging them around using the touchscreen and that sort of thing. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that translates to um, uh, sort of standalone play on the TV. Obviously, you can still do the touchscreen stuff if you're playing Switch in handheld mode, but not uh, not if you've got it connected to a TV. But I'm I'm sure they've thought of all that. Um, and yeah, so so this this is a cool game. It's it's a lot of fun, and again, um, further evidence that Nintendo is keen for some of its best games from the Wii U era that uh, no one played, but which were very well received, um, are getting a, a wider release, and that's a good thing. One interesting thing to, one interesting thing to note about this is that uh, ahead of Pikmin Three Deluxe coming out on Switch, which is basically in October. Um, Pikmin 3 has disappeared from several regions Wii U eShops as well. So if you wanted a digital download version of that on Wii U, um, in a lot of places you can't get that anymore. You can still obviously buy a disc version, but uh, if you wanted a download version, uh, yeah, you're out of luck now until October. Hmm. Yeah, um, I wonder how likely it is one day that a switch adaptation of the star fox game the way you could have with all the touchscreen malarkey excised <laughs> and reworked uh, i don't know it'll ha- it wouldn't even be the same game that stuff was so integral to the way that game was yeah made. i i mean it, w- it wasn't really touchscreen in star fox it was it was more um motion. the motion controls but it, it was the yeah. fact that you you had to you had to sort of look at what was going on on the gamepad to aim truly precisely uh, with those motion controls. So I don't know. I mean, it it would sort of be possible, but I don't know if it, if it would be more effort than it's worth. They, they they at this point they will probably just reboot Star Fox again for the fifth time or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I just it bothers me every day of my life that it's a platinum game I don't like. Uh. That's the same. I, I, I did actually really enjoy that game. It, 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 it does have a learning curve, and so many people get put off quite early because of that learning curve, and because it, it is quite awkward initially. Once you get the hang of it, it is a lot of fun, but uh, I, I completely understand why some people aren't, aren't on board with that. But, uh, yeah. Yes. All right. Continuing on, uh, we've got a Shante art book on the way, uh, which has apparently been... Um, on the way for a very long time it was first announced back at the 2017 san diego comic-con um and now there's an amazon listing suggesting it will launch on december the 1st of 2020 i'd take that with a pinch of salt because um sort of uh first of the month release dates on amazon are often placeholders um but it does look as if this is getting close to release now so um the the publisher udon has also said to people that they wouldn't have to make wait too much longer for the art book um, and they've sort of had a bit of uh, a bit of merchandise recently as well. So uh, if that listing is accurate, you can expect this in the um, in December of 2020, um, and it will cost about fifty dollars, um, and that will go nicely with the re-releases of the um, original Shantae 
from Limited Run Games, which is coming in September. Oh, God, it's coming in September. Why is all, why do I have to spend all my money at the same time? <laughs> I, dude, I, I just dropped $126 at Limited Run yesterday because of stupid Last Blade 2 <laughs> and, 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 and Samurai Jack. And then uh, Gunvolt Burst is coming next Friday. Yep, yep. Yep, definitely picking that up. And <laughs> definitely picking that up. I'm definitely picking Chante up. Um, and I, there's still some open pre-order stuff that they have running until the end of this weekend. At the time of recording, I'm still. I mean, an hour in it. I have a, like, I would quite like a copy, a hard copy of a uh, Fault, the visual novel. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember you telling me about but, that. But uh, yeah, frustratingly, the the open pre-order for that expires like the week before Mighty Gun Vault Burst releases. So I'd end up getting stung for their expensive shipping twice, which is a real bummer. Not not day of. Usually it's Friday to Friday. So. No, they've said it's it's ending on Sunday, so which is uh, oh oh it's one of the, oh is it one of their yes, distributed yeah, titles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, th those have a different date. Yeah, range. yeah. So that's a bit of a bummer, but I might just have to suck it up and do it anyway because you know, cool. Ninety percent of my Switch library is limited run stuff at this point, so there's no reason to change that at this point. <laughs> Same. <laughs> no complaints, but yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, carrying on. Next thing we've got is that Torchlight 3 will exit early access and launch for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC uh, this fall, apparently. Um, so if you buy by through Steam, you'll get the exclusive Red Fairy Pet because digital download exclusivity platform, whatever. Um, yeah, so I, I haven't seen anything about Torchlight 3, to be honest. I'm not really seeing anyone talking about it, but uh, Torchlight is a series. is a lot of fun, certainly. Um, yes. Have you looked at any of this at all? Yeah, it's like, this is curious, right? Because if you remember a couple months ago when, like, Torchlight 3 was announced, there was a lot of, like, talk about, like, maybe it was going to do something different and be this, like, online, like, social, like, developing world oh, kind of yeah, thing. Oh, yeah, I do remember that, yeah. But but now it's clearly just Torchlight 3. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know what they abandoned or what changed about those initial ideas, but, like, if you watch the footage, it's just, like, more torchlight uh -huh. like this is great i because i didn't want that other game <laughs> that they were talking about like i just want bigger better modern torchlight yeah. which this appears to be um it's just hectic there looks like there's shit happening everywhere in the uh in the video footage they've shared and it just looks like more torchlight same charming cartoony steampunky mm -hmm. world they've uh, they've announced the character class. Yeah, so I was just going to say these sound quite entertaining. So, so you've got an enchanter, so fairly standard fantasy type stuff, and you've got a sharpshooter. Then you've got a robot, uh, and you've got a guy who attacks with a heavily armed battle train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, that's always been Torchlight's thing. Is like, play, it plays off the steampunk setting to give it kind of a. Uh, well, I don't know if steampunk is the right word, right? Because it's not like Victorian. Mm. It's like some. It's like a weird steam medieval hybrid. It's, it, it's like a very. It's, unique, it's very sort it's of. Like a fantasy it's very sort steam. of Warcrafty, isn't it? Which is kind of understandable given the background uh, of of the original ones. Yeah. But yeah. There's a very kind of um, World of Warcraft type aesthetic to it. So there's there's sort of high fantasy stuff going on, but then there's also industrial stuff happening in there as well and it's yeah it's quite a quite a pleasing aesthetic yeah i just love it so, so i can't wait for this i'm happy that it's on the switch i still have to pick up the switch version of two because mm -hmm. i would very much like to replay that on my tv because i only ever played that on steam before um yeah just fun M more you know diablo 3 on the switch is the best mm -hmm. 
it's the best. We had so much fun with that. So like, I'm always on the lookout for new of uh, these type of overhead hack and slash loot games. You know, we had a ton of fun with um, Snack World. Yep. Like, so this is just more possibility for that kind of fun to me. In a series I know is great and has always been great. Yeah. So, yeah. So Torchlight. Yeah, cool. And if that's not enough isometric hacker slash dungeon crawlers for you, uh, Supergiant Games is also working on a roguelike dungeon crawler called Hades uh, for Switch, which will have um, cross-save functionality with the PC version, which is currently available in early access and has been since 2018. Um, yeah, so this this looks like it's got uh, Supergiant's very distinctive kind of um, isometric perspective with its solid animation and stuff, and then it's combining it with rather than a, a fixed narrative, it's it's more roguelike and inspired by Greek mythology from the look of things. So, yeah, this this looks pretty cool. Yeah, I love Supergiant's work. I haven't played Pyre yet, mm -hmm. but um, I I love Transistor and and. Bastion, yeah. so I just got super excited about this. Yeah, so so this looks cool, and uh, you can play it now if if you're happy to play the early access version on either Epic Game Store or Steam, uh, and then the Switch version is coming out later this year. So presumably that will coincide with the the launch of the full version on PC as well. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it's it's been quite well regarded too. I, I believe the Penny Arcade guys lo really loved. Oh, it that's when good. It first launch that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. So they like they like. Supergiant stuff in general. They were they were one of the first people who really sold Pyre on me. I haven't played it yet, like I said. Mm -hmm. but it was basically their recommendation that put it on my like short list. Are you familiar with Pyre? Is that the is, is might, that the weird sort of sports one, or am I thinking of something different? Yeah, it's like a visual novel fantasy sports yeah. game. Like uh, I, <laughs> you like recruit your dudes and then you play like a weird like fantasy. Like it's, I think it's mostly like basketball. Okay. It was kind of described, but like, like completely with this like fantasy skin over it. So like, you're like mages, like passing this like energy ball back and forth, <laughs> and like, but it is basketball. Yeah. Like it's all just, it's a basketball visual novel cloaked in like a fantasy universe with like a ton of character development. <laughs> like nothing, nothing about that doesn't sound curious and worth checking out. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll have to give that a look. I, I I remember hearing a bit about that back when it was first announced, I think, but I've never looked into it since. So, but yeah, sounds cool. Honestly, the only reason I haven't checked it out yet is because there's been no physical version of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. As with so many things. Um, nice segue into uh, another chance to own Ikaruga physically. Uh, Nicalis are doing a limited print physical version of Ikaruga. For PlayStation 4 and Switch on October the 27th in North America, and that will set you back $60. Uh, but it has got a few extra bits and pieces in there. Um, so um, it's got the game, it's got a, uh, a a heavy outer box, whatever that means, presumably just a cardboard box, uh, and then a steel model kit of the Ikaruga ship, assembly required, uh, a heavy stock instruction manual, which is worthy of its own bullet point these days, um, and a sticker with the word warning on it. <laughs> Yeah, it appears to be the graphic for when a boss yes, is coming. Yeah, I think so. Like the sticker, like the, the warning. Yeah, which is kind of one of those legendary yeah. ones. The Ikaruga yeah. one is like, I forget what like the English on it says, but it's like, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I don't know. This game is like super formative for me. I don't know. I'm like, so Ikaruga was the first game I ever imported. Mm -hmm. Um. Like when I like started to have money, and I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna start importing games." Like I still have the Dreamcast, 
version yeah. like that I Im- imported back in the day. The only thing I don't like about this is like it's it's kind of chintzy. I don't know, like it should be like an Ikaruga Radiant Silver Gun two pack. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know. Either way, Team Treasure. So uh, anything that has treasure on it, I will buy. Yeah, uh, so. yeah for sure. Um, besides the Nicalis version, there's also a Japanese version which is coming out on September the 24th as well. So you might be able to import that from somewhere if, uh, for whatever reason, you're not able to get hold of this one or you don't want to order from Nicalis or whatever. So, um, yeah, be sure to, to, to look around. Okay, um, what else have we got? Um, another sort of Amazon-based rumor here. Amazon UK apparently listed um, Zelda Skyward Sword for Switch. Which, again, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen, but um, it is noteworthy that this has appeared, because this is this is one Zelda game that people have been particularly keen to see a remaster of, just because the, the Wii one was so heavily reliant on the motion controls, and people really want a version where you don't have to do that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's why I posted this. I was like, just please. Yeah. Like, it's, it's beautiful to dream. I've wanted this forever. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, Nintendo have been saying for a long time that they that they've got no plans to do this, and the Amazon UK listing uh, says it says it will release on January the first of twenty thirty, um, and it's also not listed in the video games department. So uh, who knows? I would buy this, and I would buy a Switch version of Skyward Sword in twenty thirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same probably. <laughs> so yeah nothing announced there as yet but it is it is rumored so it may well happen and um yeah given the demand for it nintendo would be foolish not to follow through on that i think right uh what else have we got uh ketsui destiny kizuna jigoku tachi uh is getting a western release from the look of things um as it had some playstation store um uh listings leaked um yeah this is part of m2's shot triggers series which has been amazing yes you know their their re-release of battle garega was mm-hmm. top notch super top notch yeah. so yeah i don't know much about this game the ketsui series is not something i've been super into but more shmups are never a bad thing. yeah no I, I don't know well either it, it, it it's a it's by cave isn't it um Yes, that's the big. That's the big noteworthy piece of info. Yeah, that's um. It's, it's but like yeah, it's a cave one I'm not super familiar with. But uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be cool if we get some more of this M2 shot trigger stuff over here because I mean M2 really know what they're doing with with porting stuff to to newer platforms and ringing out the best possible performance from them. So and uh, have have uh, their other stuff has had some limited run releases, hasn't it? I think. Oh yeah, the Battle Garega yeah. did. Like, it changed my life. I could finally own Battle Garega physically without spending like a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if this comes out in the West, then there's a good chance that you might be able to own a copy of this to put on your shelf as well. So that would that will be cool. Um, yeah. So keep an eye out for that one. Uh, what else have we got? Um, the spiritual successor to the Momodora series, which is called Minoria, uh, is coming to PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Switch on September the 10th for twenty dollars. Um, so this is coming through uh, Dangan Entertainment, um, and it f- oh, great. and it first launched uh, last year on PC. Um, so these are the new console versions of it. Um, have you played or, or familiar with this one at all? Uh, I've not played Minoria. Mm-hmm. I am familiar with the Momodora series, yeah. though. Um, I don't know. Have you watched the footage for this thing? It is gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, it's, it is. 
absolutely lovely. Some gorgeous animations. Very nice sort of sense of style to it all. Um, lots of interesting effects and things. And it's... Yeah, the just the... the, the I don't know how you describe it. It's kind of sort of flat shaded animation style, isn't it? Um, yeah. But there's there's like really slick and smooth character animation um, in there as well that uh, sort of gives it a very kind of animated movie feel to it in a lot of places. It very much appears to be that this kind of like the modern thing that um, I mean I'm not sure about the process that was used to make it, but it looks like um, how Arc System Works does their deal, where they are making three, taking 3D models and then mapping 2D to yeah. it. Because like this level of fluidity in the animation isn't really possible with traditional pixel yeah. art. But but the textures mapped to these models are low res, so that it looks like pixel yeah. art. Um, which is a shift from the Momodoro games are like s solid proper traditional pixel yeah. art. So it's interesting to see them taking this in a new direction, but it's just the aesthetic of it is this beautiful, like washed out, low color, kind of somber um, color palette, yeah. which I really appreciate. The Momodora games were the same. Um, so yeah. yeah, new new action side scroller where you get to be a cute nun with a sword. Okay, sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. It's worth noting that this this is not a sequel to Momodora. This is a, a spiritual successor. So it's it's uh, it will probably play quite similarly but it's got this new aesthetic and so on um and to go along with that uh, there is a new momodora game on the way as well um which uh is a celebration of the series 10th anniversary um there's a teaser trailer out for it so far um but it's only about a minute long and doesn't really tell us anything um but yeah, yeah it's just exciting that it exists yeah, exactly a new momodora game is happening as well as minoria so uh, keep an eye out for that as well uh What's next? Street Fighter V Champion Edition DLC. Um, this was announced uh, a little while back at the time of recording, but yeah, we've uh, we've got some some new characters coming for Street Fighter V. If anyone still cares, um, so we got <laughs> so we got Dan. I just I don't normally care about Street Fighter news at all, but these are all a great characters. Yes, so I got super excited. Yeah, so we got Dan Hibiki, we've got Rose Oro, and uh, the one that was most interesting to me was uh, Akira Kazama from Rival Schools, which, as far as I know, is the first time Capcom has even acknowledged Rival Schools' existence for about twenty years. So, I was going to say, any time <laughs> Rival Schools gets acknowledged in any way, it's newsworthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, also, I love Rose. <laughs> <laughs> in love with this Rose. This does not surprise me, looking looking at the way she looks and uh, imagining <laughs> what she sounds like. <laughs> um, yeah, so the plan for these four characters is Dan is planned to launch in winter of 2020. Uh, Rose is coming next spring. Uh, Oro is coming in summer of 2021. And then Akira is also coming in summer of 2021. So uh, they will be uh, sort of drip-feeding those out over the course of the next year or so. So... Uh, yeah, if you're still playing Street Fighter Five, hang in there. You've got some cool characters on the way. All right. Um, I think that is pretty much everything we had on our list. So is there anything else you want to bring up before we move on? No, I, th I think that's it. I mean, so much of like what's been going on lately has just been like rumors and like drips and drabs of like single sentence stuff. Yeah. Like I did, I did hear recently that Capcom um, renewed the Darkstalkers trademark, mm -hmm. but that probably doesn't mean shit. It just means they're protecting their trademark. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Did we talk about the uh, the Street Fighter guy leaving Capcom? Oh. In the was, that was that was since the previous yeah no podcast, no we didn't we right? didn't mention that did we? So um, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. Ono yeah uh, is it oh, it's Ono right? Yeah uh, hold on let me Street Fighter Ono 
uh, Yoshinori Ono. Um, yeah, so so he le he left Capcom on uh, August the 9th, or, or rather he announced that he was going to be leaving Capcom this summer on August the 9th. Um, and this is noteworthy because he's been the producer on the franchise since 1998, so this is a, he's been sort of very much the, the face of the series for a very long time. Um, yeah. And he's moving on to do his own thing. I don't think he's announced what he's doing next. Um, but so keep an eye out on Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either keep an eye out on Kickstarter or keep an eye on Arc System Works. I suspect um, that would be the logical thing. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the like what would happen in the fighting game community if Ono went over to Arc System Works? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the whole fighting game community has kind of been a bit in flux recently, anyway, with with all sorts of uh, all sorts of drama going on that we won't get into now, but. Uh, yes, yeah, the fighting game community can eat my butt. <laughs> like I just like I just like fighting games because it's fun character design yep. and fun to play with my friends locally. Like I don't care. Yeah. I don't care about any of it. I just live in my little bubble where I get happy about character design and local. Yeah, exactly. I I mean I I don't really give a shit either. But there there were some people conjecturing that. Um, this move may have been related to the recent drama and he wanted a fresh start. I mean, the drama wasn't surrounding him at all, I hasten to add, but it may have just been yeah. that he wanted to detach himself from that community for maybe a little while and then come back and do something when everything had, had, had blown over. But I don't know. That makes sense. That, that is all conjecture at the minute, but uh, we'll, we'll have to see, I guess. Capcom has been building a lot of goodwill lately, making some decent stuff, but there's always, like, their handling, like, Street Fighter V and, like, their handling of Street Fighter V is so negatively mm -hmm. thought of, and not just the fighting game community, but the gaming community in general, yeah. that, um, uh, he would be wise to step back. <laughs> I'm, I don't know how much of what's gone on with Street Fighter V was him, y you know, uh, I conjecture that he probably did his best to fight against the corporate stuff that made it what it is. Yeah. I mean, I hope. Like, you know, but... I mean, going back to Darkstalkers, like, he, how many times in the past five years has he been, like, on Twitter, like, all I want to do is make a new Darkstalkers. <laughs> and... <laughs> so, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> It'd be great if he teamed up with those Arika guys. You remember they, they did that fighting lair EX? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because that that you know that's all got its roots in classic Capcom as well. Yeah, I was going to say, is is that the that's the one that people think is like a spiritual successor to? Was it Street Fighter Alpha? Street Fighter EX. EX, that's the, the one. 3D yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. It has characters from that, like the original characters that Arika created. They were allowed to continue using. No, oh, that's cool. So like it, it, it is. A, it is like it takes place in the same universe as Street Fighter EX. It just doesn't have the Street Fighter characters yeah. in it. Oh, that's cool. Like they main they maintain creative control of the original characters they created for the EX series. Mm -hmm. So only the traditional Street Fighter characters don't appear in it. Oh, that's neat. Um, so that'd be cool. Mm. It'd be cool if you teamed up with those guys. Yeah. All right, if that's everything then, we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what we've been playing recently. So we'll see you in just a sec. Attention shoppers. The new Atari cartridge game is in. Excuse me. Uh-oh. George again. Ooh, Atari's ASD battle. It comes with 27 games, but that's just for starters. You can get nine cartridges, 187 games. Blackjack. I'd like an Atari. Sorry. Only our demonstrators left. Mine! No, George. Mine. 
the new video computer system by Atari. More games, more fun. Welcome back. For our second segment, we're going to talk a bit about what we've been playing recently. So, Chris, hit me. What have you been up to? Well, pursuant to our most recent discussions about our recently rediscovered love of, like, two generations... Oh, no, one generation? Well, I guess two generations ago, the PS3 and the 360. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just been amassing, like, a stupid amount of PS3 and 360 games for, like, $10. Yep, same. And just, like, and just, like diving deep into that shit. So, like, I haven't really been playing anything, um, like, hardcore, like, dedicated lately. I've just been, like, every night putting, like, an hour to an hour and a half into my, like, recent weird old game acquirements. <laughs> so, like, one of the things I, I wanted to talk about today was, uh, Guilty Gear 2 Overture? Is that the, that's that's the one that isn't a fighting game, right? That's the one that's not a fighting game. Yeah. That's the one that's League of Legends but from a third person perspective <laughs> set yeah. in the Guilty Gear universe. Uh-huh. Um so yeah, I mean I I think when it first came out everyone shot on it because it wasn't a fighting game. But like you know how like some of these companies get weird with their like titling so like sequels to the guilty gear fighting games aren't na- aren't numbered sequels that's guilty yeah. gear and guilty gear x and then guilty gear x2 it's like the fighting games are their own line so like i guess the original reasoning behind this being guilty gear 2 was like if it's guilty gear 2 and not guilty gear x the, s- the numbered sequels are going to be explorations of the guilty gear universe with different um genres mm-hmm yeah. So, Guilty Gear 2 is a MOBA, uh, just but from a third person, so it's got a little bit of Dynasty Warriors flavor to it, Yeah. but but you're third person and you're controlling your character. So, like unlike traditional MOBAs, which come from Warcraft DNA with the overhead clicky-clicky model, um, you're actually controlling your dude on the ground, you've got moves, you can do combos, jump, dash... Um, and it's literally just a MOBA. You have control points and towers that you have to take down. The enemy towers are consistently producing um, little AI-controlled fighters that you have to kind of hack down on your way to the tower to take it. Uh, and then you encounter the enemy masters, as they call them, which are like the mm-hmm. big characters. And then you like fight with them. And then it feels like a 3D arena fighting game. Like You can lock on to them, and then there's like... Yeah combos and knockbacks like there's a little bit of fighting game dna baked into it when you have the duels with the master characters so it's really interesting um i don't know if it's something i could really dig into in a serious way because i just don't do well with like a real-time strategy element games Mm -hmm. um i just my brain just can't wrap around it so i get bogged down really quickly just like trying to like have the duels and stuff and then i i forget to actually like protect my choke points and like control my dudes and stuff so yeah i'm I'm not good at it it's just the kind of game that doesn't mesh well with my brain but you know as we're often talking about like i'm glad i own it i'm glad i've played it it's a really curious game like doing interesting things with mashing up different genres um and I, I've really in, enjoyed checking it out and learning more about it because uh, I, I really like Guilty Gear as a franchise, the lore, the character design. So it's been very cool for me to finally like kind of explore this kind of black sheep of the series. Yeah. Um, other stuff I've been playing in a similar vein. Um, uh, 
Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. <laughs> <laughs> you might just thought on that, did you? Cool. Yeah, I did, and um, I remember playing the demo back when it first was coming out, and I remember just hating it, mm-hmm. <laughs> like absolutely hating it. But I think it's one of those examples where, like, sometimes a demo can do more damage to your perception of a game than it can do good. Yeah. Because a, a demo often straddles this fine line between um, putting you into a point in a game where you are seeing some cool stuff, right? Like, it, like sometimes a demo doesn't start you at the beginning of a game because that's kind of boring and no one wants to play, like, the opening hour and a half of a game in a demo. You want to be, like, at the point where you've got a couple cool powers and, like, neat stuff is going on. Yeah. But... But for some games, especially where there's an interesting learning curve or unique mechanics, that can be really hurtful, right, to the experience you have because you need to be weaned into the cool stuff. Yeah. So I remember the Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts demo, like, plopping you into this mission where you had to, like, build a vehicle that was, um, like, pursuant to playing this, like, soccer game with trucks, uh, which was really challenging because you didn't really know how to do all the things it wanted you to do to successfully execute on it. Right. Um, whereas playing Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts from the beginning, owning it, it starts you out with tiny vehicles that can't really do much and teaches you how to build and modify them and like how to actually exist in its world, which is, like, now after playing it for like two hours last night, I feel like I would be able to tackle that challenge in the demo that frustrated me. So it's just kind of... Right. Like, an yeah. interesting treatise on like how demos can be dangerous. <laughs> um, so Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts is technically the third Banjo-Kazooie game. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's different about it is instead of just being a traditional platformer, um, like a collect-a-thon 3D character platformer, um, it introduces uh, vehicles. So the whole point of the game is vehicles that you can build and modify using this really interesting, almost Lego-like system where you collect yeah. components that are essentially like cubes and like prisms and like you literally build these vehicles Lego style or you can just purchase blueprints of, of functional vehicles that you can construct based on the parts you own that you don't actually have to use the builder yourself. But then mm-hmm. you can modify those as you wish. So... Um, using what was at the time like the revolutionary power of the 360, right? It's uh, there's, <laughs> it's 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 more heavily based on like physics, yeah. Um, and and the worlds are huge to accommodate the fact that you're driving and flying around them in vehicles. Um, so it's really interesting, and I was really struck by um how fun it is because of the scale of these environments. Yeah. Um, is there's just they're big and like when you the hub world is tremendous like i just explored the hub world for like 45 minutes last night and it's like full of collectibles and unlockables like the hub world is one of the places where you find the crates that contain the components you need to build the vehicles so yeah. you're you're encouraged to treat the hub like a level in and of itself and to really just spend time uh, navigating that and, and looking for like interesting navigation puzzles and like oh well 
here's a slope that I can't get up, but two missions later, you might unlock the grip tires that allow you to climb slippery slopes. So there's a whole huge kind of gate and key mechanic where the more you play, the more components you unlock, the more functionality you unlock leads to more things you can access. Um, a mission that you might not have been able, that you may have been able to complete, but not complete with a good enough time to get like the best trophy for time. Um, you might be able to come back two hours later with a vehicle with better tires, lower weight, and complete it with a better time. So there's a ton of emphasis on interesting replay to, to try to attain better times, um, tweak your vehicles. It's, it's really, really cool um, <laughs> and really, really charming and stupid. Um, the, the whole thing is built around this sense of humor where like the entire story is that Banjo and Kazooie have become irrelevant like i don't know so like so like because it had been 10 years since banjo tooie on the n64 and banjo kazooie nuts and bolts like a whole 10 like a whole 10 years so like the game opens like in the setting of the original banjo kazooie um spiral mountain where like the, the the original games take place and like banjo kazooie are just like they have gained a ton of weight and they're just eating pe- <laughs> and they're just eating pizza and they don't care they're like well we banished like the what's the witch's name gruntilda they're like well we yeah. banished gruntilda in the last game it's like nothing matters like we just live a lazy life and eat pizza um <laughs> but then like gruntilda like escapes like and comes out and then like this dude comes down and he's like the master of all video games it's like his thing <laughs> and like that's the story and he just makes fun of them for being like irrelevant <laughs> he was like he was like you guys are mascots of like dubious popularity like you're not nearly as cool as that italian dude you haven't been in nearly as many games as that italian <laughs> dude like like i'm going to make a new game for you because you need to become relevant again and he just like makes fun of them the entire time and then like the first thing he does is like let's have some fun like i'm going to make you collect tons of pointless items just like you used to have to do and then he like snaps his fingers and the entire landscape becomes covered with like these gold pickup items and and he and he makes you run around and like pick them up and then like after like 5 minutes of that he's just like Dude, knock this off. Like, nobody wants to do this anymore. This is stupid. <laughs> and, and he's like, I'm going to take you to, like, a world of my creation where, like, you'll do something new and relevant that, like, people actually want to do now. <laughs> and then it's the physics-based puzzling and vehicle building. Um, but still collect-a-thon. Like, they didn't actually get rid of that. <laughs> but, like, they, there's just a whole, like, in-joke about how, like, They've become irrelevant, like the classic 3D platformer is not something people want to engage with anymore, and then, uh, and then continues to make a 3D platformer, but with like new and interesting elements that were pertinent to really the game development scene at the time, which was mm-hmm. a really heavy o- emphasis on physics. Yeah. Because that was like super fashionable when that game was made. Um, yeah, so I'm really enjoying it. It's definitely got its flaws. The physics are not great, <laughs> and you and you struggle against them sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to control. It can get a bit frustrating. There's just shit in the way constantly in a way that's not like fun. So like you're yeah. driving your like car around town, and it's like if you try to run around on foot in the town, like you'll get a little message that pops up, and some of you are like, "What are you doing?" Like the whole reason we gave you cars is so you don't have to spend too much time on foot. But then like <laughs> if you drive around, like nobody gets out of the 
friggin' way. Yeah. So you're just, like, hitting, like, pedestrians all the time, and then you gotta, like, stop and, like, flip your car back over. It's like, there, there's, it's, it seems at odds with itself sometimes in a way yeah. that can be frustrating. But for, like, what I paid for it and, like, the sheer scale of it and, like, the... I'm really just enjoying its weirdness and its interesting... I mean, it's probably one of the last great Rare games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, although that, that, I guess people love that pirate game on the Xbox One. I never played it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of find that hard to think of as kind of classic rare because that that's got a very strong multiplayer focus, hasn't it? I think it's exclusively multiplayer. There is no yeah. single player component. Yeah. So um, I mean, I I, can't, I I mean, I to be honest, I imagine that the rare of today is almost completely different staff wise to how it was back in those days. Anyway, so um, yeah. It's, there's I, no, there's no doubt. Like Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts actually feels like classic rare. Yeah, like the yeah. the jokes are there. They're on point. Like when the, like when like the master of video games like first introduces himself, he's like, ah, oh, I like I'm like the master of video games. I create all video games, and uh, and and Kazooie's like even games that don't sell well, like grabbed by the Ghoulies. Like there's like <laughs> there's like actual like in jokes about rare. Yeah. And like one of the one of the level worlds you go to is supposed to be the inside of your Xbox. <laughs> so like you go to it, and like the first scene in that level is just a disc spinning in front of you, and like the banjo kazooie nuts and bolts disc in the tray. <laughs> like it's full of really cool jokes. Like every new level you go to has like a like a sitcom style introduction sequence where it's like, yeah. oh well, welcome to like banjo lands. Like and then. All the classic banjo kazooie characters are in each level, but like as different roles because they're playing a role in a game. Like yeah. each level you go to is supposed to be a game, like the master of games has made. So it's like, oh, starring Mumbo Jumbo, like as the farmer. But then in the next level, it's like starring Mumbo Jumbo as like the game programmer, like in your Xbox. Like, so yeah. like they, they, they take on different roles as like an ensemble cast, and it's like, so there's like a cute credits roll for like each new level. It's just full of like cleverness and like funny jokes and that like tra tra traditional rare way. Yeah, yeah. People tend not to talk a lot about rare from that era, but they did some cool stuff. Like, uh, did you ever play Cameo? I love Cameo. Cameo is great. Absolutely yeah. love Cameo. I played the shit out of that game when it first came out. Yeah, and that game got dumped on big time. But I mm -hmm. think it was an example of people not wanting that kind of game anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of the commentary in Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts was how, well, came from how like people didn't like Cameo because it was a super traditional 3D adventure game, it just happened to be on new hardware and, I, yeah. and people bounced yeah. off it because they wanted more and mm -hmm. like even like the master of games comes down in Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts and he's like he's like nobody wants to jump around and collect stuff anymore. Kids want to shoot stuff. Kids want to drive stuff. Like get out of here. <laughs> like and that's it's true. Like of, of the time, it was true. Like, these kind of games have seen a massive resurgence in popularity because of guys like you and me, our age, really wanting to relive and enjoy these kind of designs. Mm. But there was a time in, like, the, the 360 and PS3 era at the very beginning where, like, the, the broad populace did not want this kind of traditional stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, looking back on it, it's, it's a really interesting era in general. Just because so, a bit one because it went on for so long, um, but two just because there were so many sort of 
quantum shifts in the way that developers were doing things the way that players were responding to things and, and all that sort of thing it's just like while, while you were living it you didn't necessarily notice these things and it was very easy to be cynical about a lot of things in the middle of like the 360 and the ps3 era but now that we can look back on it um yeah there's so much fascinating stuff going on from that time mm-hmm. and and a lot of the most interesting stuff is as always the stuff that didn't get particularly well received when it when it first came out for sure um, and that is the stuff that is, that's really cool to explore and talk about now so yeah cool yeah, so I'm, I'm just having a hell of a time with this uh, other stuff i've picked up recently that i haven't checked out enough to talk about uh, but i will in future episodes uh, i recently got lost planet 2 oh yes uh, yep which I'm having quite a bit of fun with, but I'm not quite at a point where I'm really willing to, ready to talk about it from a place of understanding its design. Mm-hmm. But um, also, uh, I picked up Remember Me. Oh, yes, yep. Which is one of those like hot and cold games. Like People either really love Remember Me or really don't understand Remember Me. Yeah. <laughs> or, like When I posted online to, uh, that I got it, like a friend of mine messaged me, and he was like, that's my favorite game of the PS3 era. <laughs> like, so... Uh, and this is someone whose opinion I respect. So yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to see what that's got going on for it. I mean, Don't Nod have continued to be a fairly prolific developer on, like, the, yeah. I would say, like, the tier two, like, semi independent scene. Like, yeah. so then that was, like, their first major published game. So really curious to see what that's got going on for it. I remember the criticisms against it in its day. Um, something tells me they won't apply to me because I only paid nine ninety nine for a shrink wrapped copy. So, yep. <laughs> so I'm really really excited to check it out. Yeah, cool. That's that's one I haven't picked up yet, but it's one I've had on my on my list for a while. So I need to need to try and get my own copy of that as well. Because it, yeah, it always sounded fascinating to me even back in the day. So um, I will have to give that a look certainly well uh is that everything you've been fiddling with lately yeah i think so i mean still still gradually grinding away at trials of mana in the background but that's mm-hmm. kind of taken a bit of a backseat because i've just been so focused on all this weird new old games i've been buying <laughs> well i mean not to turn this into uh, an impromptu uh celebration of the xbox 360 ps3 era but i i, I mean i've also been uh, collecting stuff for that and and playing a bit of it as well so um yeah, I, one I want to talk about is uh, one I did a, a short play video on this week, which is Carrier Command Gaia Mission. Yes, please um, tell me all about this. Yeah, so this this game has a really interesting history because uh, the original Carrier Command was a game that originally came out uh, on the 8 and 16-bit home computer platforms in the UK. Uh, I don't know if it made it to the States because it, it was released by like a very British uh, software company in fact it was it, the software company it was released by was owned by uh the company that at the time was our national telephone provider oh my uh, that's bizarre just, ju- just 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 for a bit of bizarre stuff yeah there was there was like a, a big group called telecom soft and then underneath telecom soft they had these various different labels they had uh firebird rainbird and silverbird um rainbird was the label that was sort of um I guess they sort of marketed themselves as kind of games for grown-ups. So stuff on the Rainbow label always came in like really classy packaging and it had nice uh, sort of manuals and stuff. And the games themselves tended to be a bit more complex. So at the time Carry Command first came out on the Atari ST, I was a little bit too young to sort of appreciate and understand it. But I remember my dad and my brother enjoying it a great deal and I used to like watching them play it. And basically sure. the, con- the concept behind this game was that you have an aircraft carrier 
and you are at one end of this uh, archipelago of islands and the enemy has a carrier that is slightly better than yours uh, sitting at the other end of the archipelago of islands and it is your job to blow up the enemy carrier. Uh, which sounds pretty straightforward, uh, but there's a whole bunch of islands in the way that you need to go and capture, and each island has sort of facilities on it that you can uh, sort of put to work for you, say producing resources or manufacturing uh, weapons and vehicles and stuff. And so the whole thing is like this really curious blend between uh, real-time 3D action game uh, where you fly planes and drive tanks and pilot your carrier around and stuff, and um, sort of fairly large-scale strategy game as well um and it was it was really ambitious back at the time in the atari st but it was one of those games that kind of really lived up to that ambition it, it managed to actually sort of meet the expectations that it was setting in the first place and it produced a really good really well-regarded game um and so it's it's sort of like a real highlight of the atari st era for a lot of people um but sort of nothing happened relating to that for quite a long time and it was it was always sort of regarded as a retro game and then then in the early 2010s um a company called bohemia interactive uh who are most well known for their armor series and uh the daisy spin-off um they announced that they were doing a reboot of carrier command and i was like what why 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 is this happening now and where has this come from and <laughs> i kind of i kind of want it <laughs> um basically what it was is they 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 managed to acquire the carrier command license from somewhere but they also got the license for this unfinished sci-fi series called gaia um which was I, I think it was a series of books but it was it was intended to end up being like this sort of grand multimedia franchise with movies and games and all sorts of things that side of things never happened so probably one of the most prominent surviving things from this Gaia universe thing was was carrier command in the end um and so the 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 gist of it is exactly the same as the original carrier command you have an aircraft carrier the enemy has an aircraft carrier you need to blow each other up and um but they've wrapped this sort of sci-fi story around it in that um your um you you start in this ship around orbit around this moon that um is, is sort of covered with water and water and so on so it's it's all about sort of um uh getting a water supply for your colony and so on um so you you, you come down to this moon and the campaign mode in the game um actually adds uh, an ongoing story to it as well so rather than just this abstract strategy game with a long-term objective for you to accomplish if you play the campaign mode there's a story with characters and so on and there's um sort of first person shooter shooter segments as well like before you get the carry at the beginning of the game you have to actually go and steal it basically with in this first person shooter sequence uh but because it's a bohemia interactive game um based on i assume it's the same engine as the armor series it means that the whole thing is very very open open plan and outdoors and that sort of thing so sure it's not like a game where you're proceeding down linear paths and so on there's there's like lots of different ways to go and you can explore and all this sort of thing um then you get hold of the carrier and it becomes this uh, sort of large-scale strategy game where you command the carrier and you can launch these flying fighters called mantas to go and scout out things and destroy structures and things and you can launch these uh, amphibious tanks called walruses to go and capture structures and eventually take over the whole island and it is a wonderful recreation of this original atari st game 
uh, in that sort of spiritually and mechanically it's very similar, but it's just brought it up to date for for 2012 anyway. Uh, with these sort of new aesthetics and lovely weather effects and this narrative component and that sort of thing it's absolutely terrible pathfinding ai which is one of the reasons why why some people didn't regard it all that well but in practice because you're working with such a small number of units at any one time it's actually more in your interest to take direct control of those units anyway so if you're leaving them to their own devices they're probably going to end up in a difficult situation anyway so i haven't found that to be as huge an issue as some people made out but it's it's just really cool to see a game reimagined and be so true to the original um and it's it's just a fascinating project that i've really been enjoying exploring because it's it's done such a great job at what it set out to do that's great i i love this specifically right like this kind of game where they take a classic and like reimagine it with modern trappings in a way that actually feels like a logical evolution of yeah um, of the original that it's paying tribute to. Like, it, it'd be so easy to just have had them get the license and make, like, remake Carrier Command with, like, an HD skin, but it was the exact same game. Yeah. Right? Or, or, like, and then have it just be, like, a download title. But instead, mm -hmm. they did this. They made, like, a premium game extrapolating the design philosophy of the original with this modern FPS stuff. And, like, that's so neat. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to think of other games that have done that reasonably well. I'm at a loss right now, but it, it's such a cool approach, and I really respect it. Yeah, and, and like I say, this is one of those games that kind of um, just sort of appeared and then dropped off everyone's radar almost immediately because it got fairly mediocre reviews. But coming back to it now, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating game um, that you can quite easily sink hundreds of hours into because as well as the main narrative component there is also a pure strategic mode that plays entirely just like the original game so if you if you enjoy playing the game in the original style you can play it in the original style and that's just such a it's it's cool that they bothered to include that as well alongside this substantial narrative driven campaign as well and yeah it's it's just a, a fantastic reimagining of of uh, of what they were doing so yeah, that's that's very much been a highlight of my uh, my Xbox 360 rediscoveries lately. I've I picked up a whole bunch of games recently that I haven't had time to to check out yet, but I'm going to make make a bit of time for these over the course of the coming weeks. Like, there's all sorts of really interesting stuff I want to look at. Like, I want to um, I want to play with um, some of Bizarre Creations' weirder stuff, like the yeah. uh, the club that they did is quite an mm -hmm. interesting third person shooter, from what I remember. Yeah, um, and then did there's. You, uh... Which is the that racing game? I don't remember if it was Bizarre Creations or not, but it was from that generation where everything had that like neon aesthetic. Was that Blur? That was Blur. Yeah, Blur is one of my favorite games of all time. It is such a good game. I gotta that is get the game that. that that is the game that killed Bizarre Creations as well. Yeah, because um, it was probably it was way too good and people didn't understand it. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was it was a fantastic game, but Activision sent it out to die, and they did a terrible marketing campaign for it and then shut down Bizarre Creations almost immediately afterwards. And it was speaking, like, okay then. <laughs> speaking of creative, interesting games that people weren't prepared for that killed prolific developers, you also picked up the Bionic Commando that Grin made, didn't you? Like the last yes. Grin game? Yes, I haven't tried that yet, but uh, yes, I picked that up as well. I'm really interested to see what that's like, mm -hmm. uh, to hear your feedback on that. Because obviously I didn't play it at the time too, because I was stupid and i was just like oh everyone says this game's bad so i'm not gonna buy it but like now yeah. if, if i can get a copy for ten dollars i'm gonna check it the heck out yeah exactly exactly another thing i want to make some time to do at some point as well is to um 
dip into like the downloadable games from that era as well because there's oh, a bunch yeah. of stuff from uh, like xbox live arcade and stuff that uh, i didn't know existed for quite a while um and obviously hasn't had a limited release or anything like that and eventually those are going to go away so yeah uh, get them on your system now yeah exactly now is the time to take a look at them like um i mean I, I mentioned to this to you off mic uh, a little while ago but did you know that there is there was like a 2011 reboot of yars revenge that plays like panzer dragoon <laughs> i had no idea no idea yeah so there's that um there's like a uh, an open structure 2d platformer 3d shadow complex style game based on russian attack as well what? Uh, which i didn't know existed until quite recently um did you ever oh. play marble blast marble blast 3d ultra yes i have played that before that well, is a great game when i got my new so like i part like part of this whole thing is like i actually got like a decent 360 right because like my, my 360 was a launch 360 yeah so like i never wanted to play 360 because it was like it looked like ass on my 67 inch 4k tv because it didn't have <laughs> hd it didn't have hdmi output and trying to run the component cables through my um, uh, through my frame meister didn't really help much. So yeah. like now I actually have a E series 360 with proper HDMI output, proper Wi-Fi, like just nice and clean and tight and works great. So like um, when I first rebooted it up, the first thing I did was freaking play Marble Blast because it, <laughs> yeah. it was incredible incredibly addictive also yeah. part of me wants to like i haven't paid for xbox live in a bajillion years right because i don't have uh, xbox one and i never used to play my 360 but like i'm part of me wants to re-up my xbox live subscription just to play the castlevania online multiplayer game again <laughs> i forgot how freaking cool that is that's yeah that's such a cool game that is that vastly underrated game again a game that came out people didn't really know what to make of it because this is castlevania but I, I spent so many hours on that game when it first came out. I was like, what what is everyone talking about? This game is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Like Castlevania yeah. with a loot loop? Okay. <laughs> like mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So there's a there's a ton. The only thing that's sad is that the that like creator space is gone. The like, yeah, the, those, like the, weird The indie game space. Yeah, there was some fantastic stuff in there. Um if if you downloaded any stuff from there in the past, then it, it's still in your library. So like I've still got Protect Me Night in there, for example. Yeah, but, that's that's what I'm lamenting is that I didn't get Protect Me Night, so I have like no way yeah. of getting it now. Yeah, no, no, that's that's never leaving my hard drive ever. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Oh, Yes, so I, I suspect we're probably going to have to do a full episode on this side of things at some point, but, I mean, we've already uh, talked about a fair amount of stuff there. Um, I want to do, like, a whole episode just on weird RPGs that were on the Xbox. Mm, yeah. Like the, like the Mistwalker stuff, like Infinite Undiscovery, Magna Carta 2, just, like, all those weird RPGs that are, like, stranded on the 360. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure there's like a 360 shoot 'em up episode in us as well at some point as oh, well. Oh God, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Now I have to start collecting, like, because like the 360s region locking was weird, right? Like the console wasn't region locked. Games were specifically. Yes. So like I've yeah. got to get like a list of like what what cave shoot 'em ups were region locked and what ones weren't. Yeah. Because there's a ton of amazing stuff. Like I have a Kai Katana on my 360. I yeah. have um, oh God, I have. Uh, Raiden, well, Raiden 
four was mm-hmm. on the three sixty, and Raiden Fighters Aces was on yeah. the three sixty. Odomedius Gorgeous, I have that. Yeah, but like I got to get some of that the weird import stuff. Wasn't not not uh, Trizeal, but the sequel to Trizeal wasn't that on like one of those weird packs that you could get yes. on the three sixty. Yes, yeah, so there was uh, I forget which one it Delta was because there were there were there were two of those packs, so they they were called Shooting Love. Um, one of those is region free and the other one isn't so you have to be careful which one you get um, let me see if I can find that out for you because uh, I, I, I covered some of these a while back yeah. um, so I also just... have to get that pack that Q Games pack that includes every extend extra oh is there a physical version of that there was in the states I don't know Ooh. Yeah, it's like luminous and every extend extra like on one disc. I need that because like every extend extra <laughs> extreme is one of my favorite Xbox Live arcade games. Yeah, it exists. <laughs> it totally exists. I don't know if it's a region locks cart or not, but it totally exists. But I, yeah, I, I need that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every extend extra is incredible. Oh god. Oh yeah. my god. Are we three sixty fans? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this stuff has come out on PC since then, like um, sure. a, lo- a lot of shooter maps in particular. But there is there is still something magical about putting a disc in and being able to play weird Japanese arcade games, like the um, like um, also on the, uh, the 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 one of the Zeal collections, Shooting Love Two Thousand and X. There's this game called Minus Zero uh, by the same developer. Uh, which is a really abstract uh, shoot 'em up. It's it's kind of uh, probably best described as a sort of two D res in a lot of ways because okay. it's very it's very based on um, abstract graphics and locking onto enemies. Oh, I and, love that. And uh, sort of the music and sounds gradually expanding as you go through it. So it's yeah, it's, it's very much a sort of two D res rip off. That but sounds like my jam. It's that great. Amazing. It's great. It's great. There's so many so many good things. What else have I got? I've got uh, Espgaluda. Uh, Mushi Himisama, um, Mushi Mushi Himisama and Pink was, Sweets was not. Uh, Mushi Pork was not region locked. Uh, no, no. Oh no. man, that's so cool. That game is really cool. Yeah, so that that comes with Pink Sweets as well. So that's a double pack. Um, oh, of course. Eskatos, obviously, uh, one of yeah. my favorite shoot 'em ups. Oh, that that comes with uh, Judgment Silver Sword and. Oh jeez. Um, card actually that's a double pack as well that also comes with ginga force it's a ginga force so there's like there's like eschatos and ginga force in one pack it's a two disc pack um so yeah that's that's one definitely worth picking up because those are two fantastic shoot 'em ups oh god what um, do those go for i do even want to look at ebay i i don't know i mean i i, I picked this up about 10 years ago now and it was yeah. it was sort of reasonably priced then but um yeah i imagine that's probably shot through the roof now so <laughs> there was a game i tried to look up recently that was like going for stupid money that made me angry it was the um it was the hd remake of the original fable oh yeah Fable Anniversary is going used for like sixty dollars. Oh, that's strange. I was, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it must have been a fairly limited print game. Yeah, I was going to say. It, I think I think it, they had a fairly limited. I think it might have been bundled with something, if I remember correctly. It came um, out very near the end of the 360s life. Mm, so yeah. I, I just don't think there was a lot of copies of it made. But I want that because I love Fable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, anyway, yes, like I say, there's almost certainly several episodes in this for us, but I think for the sake of uh, for the sake of our own sanity, let's let's cut that there for now, and we'll yeah. we will definitely come back to this topic at some point in the near future. So, 
uh, let's take a short break and then we'll come back to what is ostensibly our main topic for today. <laughs> so we'll see you in just a moment. Production complete. Welcome back. For our third segment today, we've been promising for a while that we wanted to talk about the Evercade handheld from Blaze, uh, which is a, a system we were both very excited about prior to its release, and um, it very much lived up to our expectations with its launch lineup of games. So today, what we're going to do, uh, we're going to go through the launch lineup of 10 cartridges, and we're just going to pick out some of the stuff that's really stood out to us from these uh, these games so far. This won't be like a comprehensive rundown of everything that's available or anything like that, just the stuff that has, has really kind of caught our attention for one reason or another. So um, how do you want to do this? Do you just want to go through each cartridge one at a time? or Yeah, yeah, let's just go through each cartridge on the launch lineup. And uh, kind of as we discussed... Um in prior episodes, when we've just kind of mentioned the Evercade in passing, one of the things that's most beautiful about the Evercade is its dedication not only to giving you the games you expect, but for bringing interesting games that you may not have played to the fore in some of its collections. Yes. So even, which includes unreleased stuff. Yes. So, so I kind of just thought this would be a great opportunity not to... Not to spend all day talking about Pac-Man and Splatterhouse and, and Earthworm Jim and all the shit you've played already, but to really just discuss the stuff that you may not have played before. Like, what are some of the new discoveries that the Evercade has allowed you to have that you may not have mm. had the opportunity to have yeah. before? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been gradually working my way through a lot of this stuff on Mario Gamer and writing about them individually. So I've, I've still got a very long way to go before I cover all of these launch games, but I've I, I've deliberately been picking the stuff that is a bit less familiar to me to begin with, um, yeah, just because that's, that's, that's the stuff that originally attracted me to this system in the first place, is uh, the fact that this is the first official re-release a lot of this stuff has had. So if we take the first cartridge, for example, the Atari Collection 1 cartridge, this has 20 games on it. Um, including a lot of 2600 games that we've we've seen on a lot of Atari collections previously. But for me, the really noteworthy thing about this was the fact that there's a bunch of 7800 games on here as well. Yes. Um, and these have never been re-released, to my knowledge. Um, I, th I think there was like a 7800 flashback console at one point, but that was a very limited release that no one seems to remember. And so this is this is sort of the, probably the highest profile release that a lot of this stuff has had before um but then there's a lot of stuff amongst the 2600 library that's very interesting to explore as well so so uh taking atari collection one into account then what's what stood out to you in particular from this first batch well i do need to put a disclaimer down in that i don't love this old stuff as much as you do <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> like no, i kind of I understand it as like historically important, but like I just don't have fun with Atari games. <laughs> like I just don't. Um, 
That being said, um, a lot of the games that I liked on this initial collection are games that I could enjoy from like a historical and a design perspective where I could see the seeds of other genres like yes. starting to be born. And like that's really important and like curious to me as a historian. So like I'm thinking specifically about like Desert Falcon. Yep. Cuz yep. cuz a lot of these games, you know, we talk about shoot 'em ups a lot on this podcast cuz we love them so much. But so like a lot of the games I love the most from like the 20 the Atari specifically I don't know anything about the 7800 but I had a 2600 growing up are games that are have the proto nuggets of what would become the shoot 'em ups we love today. Yes. Um and I find Desert Falcon specifically curious because it's an isometric shooter. Mhm. Yeah. On this extremely limited hardware. Yeah. Um cuz like I love um I don't know if you've ever played Viewpoint on the, it's a it's a Neo Geo game that also got like a, a 32-bit port on like the PlayStation 1. No, but like not familiar. Um shoot 'em ups that have a hor- uh that have a vertical shoot 'em up feel but on a, a isometric plane are extremely rare and it's a kind of a subgenre that I'm really curious about. Yeah. And um Desert Falcon is like probably one of, if not the earliest examples of that. Like I've never played anything older than Desert Falcon that felt like an isometric. I, I think Zaxxon predates it. Um, okay, I don't. I've actually yeah. never played Zaxxon. Oh, have you not? Oh, you should no. play Zaxxon. Zaxxon is great. Um, yeah, yeah Zaxxon was actually pretty early. Um, Desert Falcon, I think, was quite a late twenty six hundred release because it also came out in the seventy eight hundred. And there was there was a period of time uh, where uh, Atari would develop stuff primarily for the Atari seventy eight hundred, and then kind of backport it to the twenty six hundred, which obviously that was considerably sense. more limited in its capabilities. But there's yeah, there's there's quite a few games that have both twenty six hundred and seventy eight hundred versions. And in fact, the seventy eight hundred version of Desert Falcon is on the Atari Collection two cartridge for okay. Evercade. So if you want to compare the two and see exactly the differences between those two platforms, which are considerable aside from the sound um one thing i find hilarious about the 7800 is they upgraded the graphics and everything and made it look nice and it was much more powerful and faster and then they used the same sound chip that was in the atari 2600 <laughs> which is terrible just like beep, beep, <laughs> beeps and farts yeah yeah and it's like this was the platform that was supposed to go up against the nes and like you look you think of that and you think yeah i'm not surprised that atari went down the shitter at that point really <laughs> it's like that, what is even more hilarious about that uh is the fact that the atari 5200 which came out between the 2600 and the 7800 had a better sound chip it had the it had the sound chip from the Atari 8 behind computers, which was a really good sound chip. Not quite up to the quality of the Commodore 64 SID chip, but certainly approaching that quality. You think it was a cost-cutting uh, measure? Yeah, yes, yes, it absolutely was. Because I, I don't know how much you know about Atari history, but um, I, just just that I don't like Atari. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, so like, the, so like the, the the key thing in Atari's history, which is uh, which most people attribute their fall in the mid 80s to, was. Um, I mean, the video game crash of 83 was obviously a big part of this, but one of the most critical things that happened was that in 1984, a guy called Jack Tramiel took over the company. He bought it from um, Warner, who owned the brand originally. Um, and Jack Tramiel, uh, he used to run Commodore. And he was like a very ruthless businessman who was sort of very much concerned with uh, saving money and cost cutting and so on. So for the majority of 1984, he basically froze every project that Atari was working on 
uh, to try and figure out what was going to make the most the most money so that was what killed the atari 5200 because he basically thought well this isn't this isn't going to work um the atari 7800 was originally supposed to come out several years earlier but because of tramiel doing this whole sort of analysis and cost cutting practice it ended up coming out way later than it was originally supposed to be and it was already um, out of its element at that yeah, point exactly 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 so 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 uh, this is where a lot of the problems came from atari was like in real turmoil uh, in the mid 80s onwards uh, because of of Tramiel and him him trying to decide what the priorities were, so he very much wanted to focus on things like the Atari ST, which he was marketing as a competitor to the, to the Macintosh at the time. Um, and indeed, he was doing a good job as a rival to the Macintosh for things like desktop publishing and MIDI and that sort of thing. The Atari ST was doing great, but you just get the impression that he really didn't know what to do with the game side of things, which had been very much been Atari's bread and butter up until that point. And so, yeah, he ended up sort of basically discarding all this goodwill that Atari had built up since 1978. And, yeah, things became a real mess from there. Oh, terrible. Um, but, yeah, that, that was a digression. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's relevant to the history, history side of things here and also explains the existence of some of these games. So the Atari 2600 stuck around a lot longer than its successors just because it was continued to make money. So many people had bought a 2600 in these early days. Um, th there was still a market for games right up until like the late 80s in a lot of cases um, and so y you would find stuff like Desert Falcon getting ported back from the 7800 and you'd probably find that the 2600 version probably sold better despite being considerably inferior in terms of technology oh it makes sense mm. yeah it's fascinating um so yeah, the, the the stuff on this collection that has stood out to me in particular, like I say, I've, I've been particularly prioritising looking at the 7800 games because sure. I find these fascinating because I, I, I never played on a 7800 either. Um, but I knew some of these games by reputation. Like, probably the most legendary of them is Ninja Golf. <laughs> <laughs> Which may be the stupidest video game ever made. <laughs> I love it. Ninja Golf Ninja Golf is a genuinely very good game still. Yeah. I, um, I never usually usually stupid as a compliment from me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah. used it on I used it on Banjo Kazooie in the last yeah. segment. Like yeah, I like I like things that are stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I mean Ninja Golf is stupid, but it, it knows it's stupid and it embraces it fully and that's what makes it so good. So I mean it is exactly what it says. It's like you get an introduction sequence just that the the last step of your ninja training is you must complete a deadly round of golf. And yeah, so you indeed you are a ninja, you are on a golf course, you have to hit the ball um, across the course and get it into the hole. Um, but uh, the twist in this game is that you have to manually run from where you are to where you hit the ball to. Um, and obviously you hit the ball in a straight line, so you can plan out your route on the map. And different types of terrain on the golf course correspond to uh, sort of like different terrains that you'll have to run across. Uh, and that will in turn will have different enemies so if you're running across the fairway you'll have like ninjas will come chasing you and there's gophers popping out the ground throwing things at you but also like if you have to run through a water hazard you end up running underwater and punching sharks in the face and that sort of thing and it's just brilliant um and then to get the ball in the hole you have to have a uh, a shuriken uh, battle against a dragon that is just protecting the hole and it's it's just wonderful absolutely That's wonderful it's great yeah it's a good time yeah, See, and like um, the, there's just something so unique aesthetically about the seven eight hundreds, like color palette yeah. and like yeah. resolutions. Like it's it's very distinct. Like it doesn't look like anything else. Like it, 
you know, it, it it's very clear that it's a 7800 game. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's a real highlight for me. Another one that I found myself liking a lot was uh, Alien Brigade, which yeah. was a, uh, a light gun shooter. Um, and, uh, again, that's another one that sort of embraces its own absurdity. So, like, at first glance, if you didn't know it was called Alien Brigade, you'd think it was an Operation Wolf ripoff. But then, like, an alien just, like, suddenly wanders across in the background or is water skiing or something like that. And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I found it hard to get behind what they want you to do in this game, mainly just because of the limitations of the graphical presentation. I, like, had a lot of difficulty distinguishing between, like, the POWs you're not supposed to kill yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the aliens and the guys you are supposed to kill. Yeah, but it's amb- it's super ambitious for its limited hardware. Like that's a yeah. lot of the, the thing with this stuff is like, even though I don't have a lot of fun playing it, like I have fun exploring it because I understand what they were trying to do with the limitations that were placed on them. So I have a lot of respect for what was accomplished. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this is is especially apparent in the Atari stuff because there were. The early 2600 stuff in particular, these were developers who were trying to define genres in a lot of cases because a lot of these genres didn't exist. Like, you you look at stuff like adventure and that sort of thing. The top-down adventure game didn't exist at that point, so this was a brand-new thing for them. And, yeah, some things worked, some things didn't work quite so well, some things got refined in in subsequent releases and so on. But, yeah, this is one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's fascinating to go back to a lot of these old stuff. Did you play Gravatar? Yes, yes, I, I like Gravitar, but I'm terrible at it. Yeah, that's um, like Gravitar is one of the examples like of, of exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it, it's so interesting, but it just mm-hmm. like wasn't successful in doing what it wanted to do. It's just like mm-hmm. too, it's too unwieldy. Like your ship has too much momentum. It's like impossible to control. But I, Gravi- I, actually, I actually like the 2600 version of Gravitar more than the arcade version because the the 2600 version is. It's still hard, but it's a bit more accessible. the mm-hmm. The arcade version is regarded as one of the hardest arcade machines ever. I believe um, that to such a degree that even the original creators couldn't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. But like, yeah, Gravitar is interesting because it creates like a sense of scale to its universe, right? So like, you've yeah, got this, yeah. you've got this like space scene. You start out, and it's like an asteroid style. Like the ship is asteroid style. It's like you have a button for gas with momentum. Yeah. Um, and then you you wheel around. You can shoot, and then you make you connect with these like icons on the galaxy screen that transport you to a different screen where there's like other challenges. Yeah. Like to take out an enemy base or to to survive against like fighters that are coming after you. So it's like it, it creates a sense of scale that you're actually like exploring a galaxy, landing on different planets with different things to do, which is nuts to think about like, yeah. for for its age. Yeah. 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 Su- super ambitious game for the period, definitely, and and especially porting it to 2600 as well. That's quite quite a remarkable achievement. That one, the 2600 version. All right, shall we move on to Namco? Yes. All right, so what is... So, Namco Museum 1 has a lot of the stuff you might expect, and it's got Pac-Man, it's got Galaxian, it's got Dig Dug, it's got Xevious, but then there's a lot of weird stuff in here as well. So, what in particular has jumped out to you on this one? I suspect it's probably the same ones that have jumped out to me, so let's hear it. Well, I think Libble Rabble needs to be talked about. I know you've written, actually, way before the Evercade, kind of extensively about Libble Rabble and its weirdness. Yes. The the reason for this was that the the guy who made Astral Chain on Switch 
specifically, right. specifically cited Libel Rebel as an inspiration for him for the whole for like one of the major mechanics in Astral Chain. So I thought I've never heard of this. I need to check it out. So I, so I checked out the arcade version and wrote a bit about it. And yeah, um, so so Libel Rebel, if you've not come across it, it's it's vaguely similar in context in concept to something like Taito's Kicks, in that you're trying to control areas on screen. Um, but the way you do it is very different to Kicks. It's it's a very early twin stick game in that you control two characters on the screen and you have to sort of wrap this line around um, sort of pegs on the screen basically to create uh, polygon shapes. And it's weird. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure I understand it. Mm -hmm. um, but something I often talk about is that even for its age, it has a tremendous amount of physicality to it. Like yes, when you wrap yes. the line around the peg, it feels good. I don't yes. know. I don't know how else to describe it. There's just that little bit of resistance to it yeah. in like the, 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 the speed of the animation and stuff where like it really does create the sense that you're wrapping string around a physical object to like draw yeah. something. Yeah, and I yeah. found that fascinating. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting game that is a great example of what we were talking about. That uh, a game that doesn't get acknowledged very often because I'm I'm not entirely sure which version uh, of the game is on the Evercade because I, I don't even I'm not even sure that it got any home ports. So it might actually be the arcade version on there. Yeah, I don't um, even know how that's possible, right? Because like I thought the Evercade wasn't supposed to have any arcade emulators on it. Like I thought it was only. NES, Super Nintendo, and Genesis, yeah. and the Atari it's, stuff at this point. It's honestly hard to de hard to determine because I because it, it it couldn't have it couldn't have worked on the NES because there's not enough buttons for it. Um, no, and, and I, so, I think it's Super Nintendo. It's got because yeah, it could be, it could be. But anyway, yeah. So it's regardless. This this is a game that doesn't get talked about very often. Like the first I heard of it was when. The guy from Astral Chain mentioned it. I, I, this was a Namco game I didn't know existed prior to that. So uh, it is the Super Nintendo version. Ah, because okay. the the cover art actually features an image of the Super Nintendo controller, like uh, because it looks like it actually the Super Nintendo version actually looks like it actually came with a pack and D pad overlay that you could oh, put cool. that you could put over the face buttons. Yeah, which makes sense. Sorry to cut you off there. But no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That was pretty much done anyway. So, but yeah, it's it's a great example of of what we're talking about there. So stuff that is from a company that we're all familiar with, Namco, but it's a game that no one talks about, which is fantastic, uh, and and a big attraction of the Evercade for me. Mm -hmm. um, which also brings me to Starluster. Yeah, you uh, which love I, Starluster. Which, yeah, which um, so Starluster is. Um, basically, Namco's take on on Atari's Star Raiders, uh, it, mechanically and structurally, it's pretty much identical to Star Raiders. Um, so, if you if you've not come across that before, what you have is you have a um, a, a two dimensional galaxy map, uh, grid based, uh, which has various bases and planets and stuff scattered around it, and your job is to eliminate the enemy presence from that map. Um, and as you're doing stuff, the enemy uh, fleets are moving around on the map every so often, uh, and they will go and attack the bases and the planets and so on. And so in order to get the best possible score at the end of the game, you need to defeat them as efficiently as possible while trying not to let any of the bases or planets get damaged or destroyed. Um, but yeah, this this is another one of those games that I didn't know existed at this point. It's... Um, 
yeah, it's it's a, a first-person space sim for the NES, basically. I mean, it's it's pretty simple in terms of mechanics and control and that sort of thing, but it's there's just something about it. It's very immersive, and again, there's a, a really good sense of physicality to this through things like like the the way the cockpit moves up and down as you're pitching and rolling your air your spacecraft say, in that game. I was it's, super impressed by that. Yeah, and it's the the other interesting thing about this game is that um, it's its difficulty levels aren't just difficulty they actually up the complexity of the game as well so like if you play on the, on the easiest difficulty level you have like i think a couple of bases to defend if you play on the middle one there's a lot more in the way of bases to defend and there's more mechanics to worry about so you can do things like you can dock with the bases to get various power-ups and stuff and so you need to manage your time a bit more effectively so that you can go and pick up these power-ups while still defending everything and then the hardest difficulty, there's this whole hidden subquest for you to find these keys that are hidden on the various planets and then use those to track down the true final boss of the game, who is literally a pixel in size on the um, on the galaxy map, uh, and then go in and fight them off. <laughs> and so there's, there's so much depth to this game that might not be immediately apparent, but it's, it's fantastic. It's a really satisfying and enjoyable game that has been such a pleasure to discover yeah yeah just it's been a real eye-opener to me to see how ambitious some of these games are like i'm mm -hmm. just gonna keep saying the same thing over and over again but like i i had no idea you know like when i was a nintendo kid like games like this were too complicated for me right yeah. so like as an adult rediscovering games that were clearly for these older consoles for adults that I couldn't play when they were current. Yeah. Right? Like, I never would have appreciated a game like this. Because I couldn't at when I was five. Right? Mm. Like, now I can. And I can understand this, like, whole other realm for these older consoles. And, like, I have the Evercade to thank for that. Because <laughs> I never would have, I never would have, like, investigated Star Luster. Like, yeah. it never, never would have occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, any more Namco stuff you want to highlight before we move on? I mean, it's it's cool that Mappy Kids is on this because that's never been released in English before. Yep, but, like, yep. I also don't actually think the game is very good. So, <laughs> so I, like, I don't know how much lip service it gets a side-scroller. It's a com fairly competent side-scroller where you collect money to try to build a house for your girlfriend um, and, yep. then, and then at the end of every stage all your money gets taken away by frustrating mini games, <laughs> so you can never get anywhere in it like that's, <laughs> is that an yeah. accurate description of Mappy Kids? <laughs> yeah, pretty much pretty yeah. much yeah okay moving on to Data East and say so what's uh, what's jumped out at you from the Data East collection uh, Midnight Resistance makes me a very happy man <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that Data East made a 16-bit super janky Contra clone. <laughs> that, that <laughs> but, like, everything about it makes me happy. Like, the, the first level opens up. The music is incredible. You're standing on the hood of a Jeep that's being driven by your partner with beautiful 80s long blonde hair, like, blowing in the wind while you're just, like, machine gunning dudes to death. And, like... <laughs> It's got a little bit of, like, Sonic the Hedgehog in it, <laughs> mm -hmm. because you collect these keys, and you have to try to get as many keys as possible to the end of each stage, because that's where you purchase ammo and power-ups. 
yeah. is, is this like shop at the end of each stage and the items are behind glass cases that you need keys to unlock and when you get hit you drop your keys like Sonic and the rings so it's just I don't know it's it's cur- it's curious attempt to meet have a me too contra and I really like it and it's it's weird and some of the levels have vertical really interesting instances of vertical scrolling yeah. which is something later contra games did as well but I really always enjoy that in a game um, yeah it's just it's cool I don't know <laughs> <laughs> how, how about you what did you enjoy on this collection uh, I'm a big fan of burning rubber Yes, me too. I've played that yeah. for hours since yeah. I got this. Yeah, but Burning Rubber is great. Um, and uh, again, this is one that's got a fairly interesting and convoluted story behind it. So this this game has three names, um, depending on which version you're familiar with. So it was known as Burning Rubber in the arcades. And then its home ports were either known as Bump and Jump or Buggy Popper. Buggy then, Popper! Yeah. What a great name. Um, and so... The version of Burning Rubber that is on the Evercade is a port of the um, of the NES version, which was done by Victor Kai and then published by Data East. Um, it's it's technically the sequel to the arcade game because it's quite different in a lot of ways. Um, you see, the, the original Burning Rubber was it was a relatively straightforward uh, racing game with the twist that you could jump over things. Um, in the arcade original, it was dependent on you going fast enough, but in the NES version, you've got like fuel and stuff to worry about as well. But uh, yeah, it's basically a vertical scrolling racing game in a similar kind of fashion to Spy Hunter. It actually predates Spy Hunter by a year. Um, so there's no shooting in it, though. So all of the combat in it is either ramming stuff off, off the road or using this jumping mechanic to land on things. Um, and it's it's one of those games that's just incredibly simple, but super, super addictive. Yes. Um, just because it's really easy to learn. All you need is left, right, up, down, and the jump button. That's all you need. It's it's intuitive to understand. You just dodge stuff. Um, but it's challenging in such a way that you can get just a little bit further each time. Um, but it's it still it still slaps you about a bit every so often. But not like- so much to be demoralizing. It's it's just really nicely paced and balanced. There's a really satisfying learning curve because the trajectory of the jump is unique. Yes. Like it, it takes it takes a minute to get used to understanding the the velocity and the trajectory of the jump. But mm-hmm. once you get used to it, like mastering it and like landing on a guy and taking him out is like so delightful. Yes. And there's there's sort of like there's a school based incentive to really figure out the timing of that as well because any of the big jumps that you have to do in order to survive like jumping over a river or something like that there's always something tiny halfway through that jump that you can land on for loads of bonus points. Yes. So like in the in the second stages for the city levels, you like you, you run into these um, huge viaducts every so often that you need to jump over, but if you time your jump perfectly so that you land on top of this viaduct and then immediately jump off it, you'll get a whole huge point bonus as well. And then there's other stuff like you get a huge point bonus for not destroying any vehicles on a level for example so if you want the highest scores you have to actually not destroy anything which is surprisingly difficult to do <laughs> yes yeah because the enemies are aggressive mm. yeah so so that's that's a real highlight for me that again that's another one that i i'm i'm not really familiar with uh from beforehand so this was this was a really nice discovery for me um you sound like you you were a bit more familiar with it from when it previously came out uh, i had played it 
I had played it in like previous like the, the arcade version, like on like yeah. game and stuff. But like I never really dug into it as deeply as like I got addicted to it on the Evercade. Like I like yeah. ran my battery out playing it. <laughs> like it is so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorites from from like the whole launch lineup. I think it's one that I keep going back to certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. All right, any more datary stuff for you? I mean, there's a lot of bangers on this cartridge, but a lot of these are games people know already. Like yeah. uh, Joe and Joe and Mac is popular. Like it's awesome that Joe mm-hmm. and Mac is on here, but people know Joe and Mac. Obviously, yeah. magical drop, but like it's nice to have a cool handheld pool game with side pocket. Yeah, like that's that's really fun. Um, but yeah, I think Burn and Rubber is the breakaway star from this collection for sure. Yeah, Aside from the stuff I respect, I already knew. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to Interplay then. What have we got here? A hard Pass. <laughs> Titan's, yeah. cool, Titan's cool, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll be honest, I only have the Interplay carts because I want the full collection. Yeah. <laughs> for the Evercade. There's a couple more interesting games on the second one, but like I largely think interplay games are rubbish. Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah. I don't have I don't have a lot of nice things to say about any of the games on this collection. <laughs> yeah, I mean the these are these are interesting curiosities. Um again, these are ones that don't get talked about that much. Um for various reasons in this case. Um a lot of these interplay stuff uh is actually uh, actually by Titus rather than by Interplay. Interplay picked up Titus's um IPs when Titus went bust. There was a, there was a whole sort of back and forth between those two companies. I think I think Titus actually owned Interplay at one point and then Titus went bust but Interplay survived, so Interplay picked uh. up all all of Titus's properties after that, which is why they're all on this one. Um I found Incantation quite interesting. Not necessarily good, but yeah. interesting. It's beautiful. Uh, the pixel yeah, Incantation is a beautiful looking game. Um, it doesn't play brilliantly, but it's a lovely looking platform game. Um, as far as I can make out, it's also one of the rarest SNES games as well. So I believe that. Um, so, again, this is one of those games that it's just cool to be able to have easy access to. Uh, and like you say, Titan is, Titan is a, a really interesting idea that doesn't quite work. Yeah, it, al- it almost works, but it just, just doesn't quite work. Titan is basically um, a take on break breakout, but combined with a top down um, map based arcade adventure, in which you have to you have to move around and bounce a ball around and break all the blocks and stuff. But you, you're doing that in scrolling mazes, which is cool in principle. Um, execution doesn't work quite so well, just because. You can't really see quite enough on screen, I think is the main problem. Uh, You can't see far enough ahead of you, which makes it quite difficult to sort of plan out um, uh, some of the more complex rebounding shots that you need to do in some of the later levels. Um, But it's a cool idea, and it's it's an example of a developer being pretty experimental at that time. So it's it's worth trying, even if you don't spend a ton of time with it. like you say, the, the Interplay collections are probably my least favourite ones as well, but there is some worthwhile stuff in there as well, like the Earthworm Jim games in particular, uh, but those are ones that everyone knows are are yeah. worth playing at this point, but the, the, are, the other stuff they, on these... <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh, let me just say, broadly speaking, my biggest issue with, like, Interplay's entire catalogue is Interplay often commits committed in their games one what i consider to be like the greatest sin of the 2d era um 
they made so much, they took so much time to make beautiful animations that they forgot that extended animations create delayed reaction times and make your yes. games play like ass. Yeah. So, like, Earthworm Jim is a visual masterpiece. Like, nothing compares to the visuals of Earthworm Jim from the 16-bit era. They're amazing. The animation, the frames of animation, the character sprites, size and detail, almost, almost unparalleled. But they're not actually fun to play because yeah. every single movement is too many frames of animation. The hit detection, super dodgy. It's just not a good game. Yeah, that's that. that that's fair. That's fair. All right. I mean, um, they are worth playing to understand that. Like this oh, is yeah, how yeah. you. This is how you don't make a side scroller. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, but but I yeah. There's no joy for me in Earthworm Jim. The cartoon yeah. is great. If you ever have a chance to watch the cartoon, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to uh, the second Atari collection then. So just for some more stuff you don't like. <laughs> yeah, well, but... there's some more stuff on this that I do like. Yes. Okay. So, so what are some highlights for you from this one then? Well, specifically... Uh, more attuned to what we were talking about with the first collection in that I never played any 7800 games in my life. Mm -hmm. So, like, I, as a kid, I was addicted to Asteroids. Yes. Um, so the 7800 version of Asteroids that's on this is amazing. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Superb. I actually like it more than the arcade version. Also, Planet Smashers as an early horizontal shoot-em-up is mm -hmm. fantastic. A fantastic curiosity. Yeah. Also, it's called Planet Smashers, which I think is awesome. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is cool. I mean, there's stuff on here. There's more stuff on this collection that I actually owned as a child on my 2600. Yeah. Like, I had Haunted House. I had Air Sea Battle. I had Bowling. I had Street Racer. Um, I had Centipede. So... Yeah, there's there's cool like, human cannonball. I mean, like, human <laughs> cannonball. It's basically yes. proto worms, right? Like, for oh yeah, most... yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, human cannonball is one of the because I, I covered that on Atari A to Z a couple of weeks back, and um, I was surprised how much I ended up actually liking that because I was sort of dreading covering it because I was like, this is a really simple game; it's going to be quite dull. But I, I was actually surprised how what an interesting sort of proto physics puzzle it ended up being. Um, I mean, it's it's very limited, obviously, but yeah, it's for the time it was uh, an ambitious experiment, certainly. Anything on that cart that was particular to you? Um, I think the main one that has really struck me on this one is uh, Solaris. Have you played that at all? I, I I mean, like I booted it up and fiddled with it, but like not enough to really get a deep understanding of it. Yeah, Solaris is one you need to put a bit of time into. Uh, Solaris is the um, it, technically it's the sequel to Star Raiders. There is a Star Raiders too, but Solaris is technically the 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 official sequel to Star Raiders. Um, what Solaris is is um, a bit like in Star Raiders. You have this sort of grid-based map with enemy forces moving around it and planets to defend and so on. Um, but they've really emphasized the sort of space adventure aspect of it and so rather than just dealing with one uh, one large sector map 
what you do is you move from screen to screen on these maps in a sort of adventure game style um but you also have these uh third person into the screen um space shooting segments as well um and so you will have to take down enemy fleets and you'll descend onto planets and take out ground targets and you'll have to defend your planets from enemies on there and dock with things to refuel and your eventual aim in the game is to explore all these sectors and find this planet called Solaris. And so there's a long-term goal in there, which is quite unusual for a 2600 game. A lot of 2600 games were purely score-based and you just play forever. Uh, but this had a definite end goal that you could reach. Um, but again, it's, it's one of those games that was very ambitious and actually managed to pull it off. Which is really impressive considering the hardware it was running on. So this is this is probably one of the most technically impressive Atari 2600 games because it's got a lot of colours, it's got some nice, uh, there's some nice graphical effects, and it's it's a big game that is slightly different each time you play. So even if you've like finished this game once, there is plenty of incentive to replay for higher scores or to try and find Solaris a bit more quickly or to experiment with different routes you can take and that sort of thing and it's it's just a, a fantastically interesting and ambitious game that actually manages to live up to its potential and so this this is another one I've spent quite a lot of time with just because it's it's a fascinating curiosity and it's fascinating to see a game that actually manages to achieve what it set out to do from this period. Yeah, I'll have to definitely dive deeper into that. Mm, for sure. All right, uh, moving on to Namco Museum 2 then. So again, we've got some stuff that you kind of expect to see on this one. But for, for me, this Namco Museum 2 is... is uh, the, the the emphasis is very much on slightly lesser known games in here. So you've got Gallagher on here. That's probably the most well-known one. Uh, you've got Tower of Druaga. Uh, but then you've got all sorts of other lesser known weird stuff on here like you've got pack attack which you probably want to talk about you've got dig dug 2 <laughs> burning force warp man splatterhouse 2 and 3 so this, where, do, where do you want to start with this I, one like this is the cart man like i this <laughs> might this might be my favorite cart of the of the launch lineup yeah uh, i mean like where do we even begin um Felios, an amazing mm -hmm. horizontal uh, I'm sorry, vertical shoot 'em up. I think it's the Mega Drive version of Felios. Yes. Um, I'm also biased because this collection contains one of my all-time favorite games ever, which is Burning Force. Yep. Yep. Um, Burning Force is something I've screamed about on this podcast <laughs> whenever possible. Um, yep. It is essentially a uh, vertical shoot 'em up that's. Um, smashed and extrapolated to a third person viewpoint mm -hmm. um and i can't get enough of it the music the visual presentation um to this day I'm the pink leotard the pink leotard yeah mm -hmm. um the the fact that every third the third act of every level transitions from a hover bike game to a to a Star Fox style plane like yep. sim like just it's so good um mm -hmm. splatterhouse three uh, is is it really interesting? And and I think it's the the black kind of the black sheep of the Splatterhouse series, um, in that the Splatterhouse one and two are uh, spe specifically uh, side scrolling beat 'em ups with no belt scrolling, right? Like yeah. no no up and down into the foreground um, and away from the foreground. Um, Splatterhouse three is a more traditional beat 'em up game, but it adds something that no other beat 'em up I think really has. Uh, well, I guess. 
in retrospect, River City Ransom and some of the Technos games have it, but you expo yeah. you're exploring a haunted house. So you're actually transitioning in between rooms, trying to find the exit. It's not just a point A to point B. It's a maze that you're exploring. And in each room, you're fighting in a traditional belt-scrolling beat-em-up style. But every episode is on a timer. Yeah. So like you have an end goal of like rescuing your girlfriend who's trapped in the mansion. And the ending you get is... Um, based on how well you perform. So, like, there's a heavy emphasis on replay, right? Because you've got to memorize the layout of the mansion to get the best times. Yeah. Uh, that's a really cool game. And, of course, Dig Dug 2, <laughs> which I yes. feel like we've both become enamored with. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so Dig Dug 2, if you've not come across it before, is completely different to Dig Dug 1 in that rather than sort of digging down into the dirt you have a top-down map view and you're digging with like a pneumatic drill type thing and uh making cracks in the ground and eventually cutting off pieces of land and so like your replacement for dropping rocks on things in dig dug 2 is is cutting off pieces of land with enemies on it um sending them crumbling into the sea yeah to a it's, just, death. it's incredibly satisfying such such a fun game and one that no one talks about. I don't uh, know why, because it's great. Did you I know? never even heard of it until I... <laughs> yeah. Did you know there is a Dig Dug game on... I think it's Nintendo DS, or possibly 3DS, uh, that combines Dig Dug and Dig Dug 2 into one game. As no. in, as in Dig, As in you're playing Dig Dug 2 on the top screen and Dig Dug on the bottom screen at the same time. What? Mm, you need you need to check that out. I I, I happen I was I've been rewatching some old classic game room videos recently, and and he happened to cover it, and I was like, I need this game. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like my brain wouldn't be able to handle. It. I was like, like preface, I'm terrible at Dig Dug. Like, there's just something about <laughs> it that like my brain can't comprehend. So like, yeah, I'm I'm definitely better at Dig Dug Two than I am at Dig Dug One. There's just something about the specific like rhythm and timing of the original Dig Dug that's like not compatible with me. But <laughs> yeah, I but got I quite good it. at it at one point. But uh, yeah, I I have to stay in practice. It, it, the DS one's called Dig Dug Digging Strike. It came out in 2005. Huh. Um, but yeah, fa fascinating game. Because, like I say, it is basically just Dig Dug and Dig Dug Two at the same time. Uh, <laughs> you said it's eShop. Uh, no, so it had a package release. What? I was gonna say because the eShop for the original DS is dead, right? Mm. You can't get anything anymore, which sucks because yeah. I missed missed Box Life, which I've always wanted to. Yeah, I had never heard of that before. Yeah, I'll definitely no, look either. into that. But yeah, the, this Namco Collection 2 is just like every game on it's good. Pack oh, yeah. Attack, yeah. Uh, a Pac-Man puzzle game that actually has Pac-Man mechanics in the puzzle game. Like you, yep. you, you use yep. the blocks to construct the maze that directs Pac-Man to eat the ghost pieces. Like what? <laughs> it's, it's, yep. it's so high concept. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, and, and and again, like we keep saying, one that not a lot of people talk about. It's like everyone focuses on like the mainline Pac-Man games, and spin-offs like this often just don't get the attention they deserve. But again, this collection gives you the opportunity to try it out for yourself, which is cool. 
Yeah, for um, a low barrier of entry. That's like the other yeah. important. That's the other important thing to really talk about with the Evercade, right? It's yeah. just like not only is it these curiosities and games you've probably never played, but it's games you would never think about playing at like a full price, high cost of entry barrier. Yes, but at at twenty dollars a cartridge or whatever the euro equivalent ends up being mm-hmm. for 10, 15 games. Like, this just becomes an inexpensive way to have these experiences and yes. own them if you're an archivist. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that the console itself is not expensive in the first place either. Well, it's like, so. it's like $100 for the console and three pack three of the launch game packs. Like, I've been selling people on this thing like gangbusters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I have a friend who drives truck. So, like, I introduced him to this to him, and, like, he was like, like, I've been hesitant to buy handheld consoles, because, like, the games are expensive, the console's expensive, and I don't really care that much about newer games. Yeah. But, like, if this is $100, and I can play Pac-Man and Dig Dug whenever I want while I'm on the road, like, mm-hmm. this is an incredible idea. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely perfect. Uh, what else on here? Warpman. I should probably mention yes. Warpman, because yeah, I like Warpman a lot. Um, Warpman is uh, yet another one I'd never heard of. I didn't know existed. Uh, Warpman is a sequel to an arcade game that was called Warp and Warp that came out in 1981 um, that I'd also never heard of. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's well, it's an arena shooter for half of it, and then the other half is Bomberman. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, it was Bomberman before Bomberman as well, which is quite interesting. So... Um, in Warpman, you start by wandering around in space shooting enemies, and when you collect a power-up, you can jump into a black hole in the middle of the screen, and then it becomes a maze-based shooter. Um, but the core mechanics in that are you drop bombs, and they they fire out energy blasts down the corridors that you're walking down. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a very early take on what Hudson would later do with Bomberman. And then it goes off in its own direction after that, so Hudson didn't completely rip, rip this off to make Bomberman. They they both do their own distinct thing, but this is another one of those games that is just so simple to understand to begin with, but so monstrously addictive. I've spent a lot of time playing this game. <laughs> all the, all, you know, all the best of these classic arcade games are like that, like sim- simplistic yeah. simplistic concepts with with the desire to score, chase, and perfect your your abilities being yeah. the core gameplay. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, should we get the Interplay Collection 2 out of the way? <laughs> to, to be fair, Interplay Collection 2 is a much better set than Interplay Collection 1. Yes. Um, I I enjoy both Claymates and Prehistoric Man quite a bit. Yep, yeah, um, both of those are solid platformers. Um, I also like Brainies in concept, uh-huh. but I find the fact that it's timed so tightly... Uh, yes, as, uh, it's not fun because of how strict the time limits on the stages are. Yes, but the yes, puzzle, absolutely. the puzzle game, the core puzzle game of it is solid. It's just I don't have fun playing it because like I'm stressed out by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Brainies. I think they just the it, the time limits are much too harsh on that because you the the time is ticking away while you're sort of review. Rev- can't speak while you're reviewing the map of the level at the start of it as well so yeah you, if, you if don't the timer have, was paused you have hardly any time to plan out what you want to do in that level and then you have to do it quickly and perfectly and it's yeah it, 
that's that's a real problem for that kind of game you you need that thinking time particularly in some of the later stages that's it to be fair as the game gets more complicated it does get a lot more generous with the time limits but i can see i mean obviously you're one of those people but i can, I can see a lot of people getting put off by quite how tight the time limits are on those early stages and assuming the whole game is going to be like that and then thinking oh sod this i'm not gonna i'm not gonna waste my time with this <laughs> no, i don't i don't like when games stress me out and like yeah that's no. been a my whole life like I, I don't like games with time limits yeah um it's just it's not a, it's not a knock against the games from a design perspective like i respect atelier but like there's something in my brain in my personal psyche that wraps around the notion of a time limit and yeah. get and it gets stressed out by it yeah like i just it's, no, just, it's part you're of not, who i am you're not the only one who feels like that i've spoken to quite a few people who feel that way about games with timers in various forms so like i, I know some people who otherwise like the like the idea of something like trauma center for example but the fact the operations in that are timed they can't play it yep same um, same here yeah so yeah, you're not alone on that one by any means, and it, the brain is it. It kind of it kind of front loads it with some really harsh time challenges, and I think that really hurts the game in the long run. But um, I mean, you could look up passwords and skip straight to the later levels, of course, as well. You mm. could always try doing that. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, from this collection, I found Rad Gravity quite interesting. Yes, uh, that's again, really interesting. Again, not certain if it's good or not, but <laughs> yeah, I, I find it's it not. An, an in yeah. <laughs> An interesting and ambitious game, certainly. Um, th this is also another one that's sort of interesting from a long-term historical perspective in that it's um, one of the first games by Brian Fargo, who would go on to do, like, Wasteland and Fallout and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so, Red Gravity, if you've not come across it before, is a uh, it's a side-scrolling adventure game, basically, where you go to different planets, you do platforming, um, you find items and weapons and things, and there's actually a a vague sense of unfolding narrative as you go through it as well which is one of the one of the reasons it's quite noteworthy there's actually a sense of context to a lot of your actions i mean it's kind of undermined considerably by the fact that there's no punctuation in the entire game um <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah it, it, in, ter in terms of concept this is a really interesting game that uh it is worth trying out there are a lot of questionable execution aspects of this game like there's blind jumps and blind falls and hidden stuff that doesn't even give you any vague clues that there's something hidden there and that sort of thing but um yeah it's it, it's an interesting curiosity that is definitely worth checking out um yeah that's pretty much all i have to say about interplay collection 2 at the minute because those are the two games that i've really spent time with sure uh, on to mega cats then so mega cat studios are a company who um they work with uh modern developers for classic systems so people who are making new games for the nes and the mega drive and that sort of thing um and sort of their, their bread and butter up until now has been doing actual sort of physical releases of these games that uh developers have otherwise released for freeware on their sites they've released them as free rom downloads that you can play in an emulator and mega cat has done a lot of releases of these on proper nes cartridges with manuals and packaging and that sort of thing um, and this collection is uh, a lot of their stuff um, that has previously been available through their website or via the original developers' stuff. Um, these are interesting games, I think, because there's, there's a, a mix of stuff that is obviously very short-form and experimental and something that I would probably bulk at paying $50 for an NES cartridge of, given that you can finish it in 15 minutes. Sure. Um, but having them all in one collection allows you to really sort of appreciate the experimentation that's going on here and the different 
uh, homages to different styles of game that they've been going through and that kind of thing. So, what's what stood out for you um, amongst this lot? Um, Multitude? Yes. really, yeah. really great. It's a yeah. great little puzzler where you are presented with a single screen puzzle and these cute little robots that each have like different abilities. They can, ones can drop through floors or one can float or one can walk and you have to just solve these puzzles using these little robots and i love kind of single screen puzzle games like this yeah yeah i i am quite a fan of multitude this is this is one of those ones that's that you can you can finish in about 15 minutes if you know what you're doing uh, but while it while it lasts there's some really interesting cool puzzles in there there's a couple of sequences in the game where um I don't think the game quite gives you enough information to let you know that something is possible. So like, yeah. there was one level in this game that I got completely stuck on because I didn't know that the characters could climb up each other. But as mm. soon as you figure that out, um, yeah, it becomes a lot more straightforward. But yeah, there's some really cool puzzles in this. Um, it's presented quite nicely. Um, this actually has its origins. They developed it as a ZX Spectrum game first and then ported it to NES. Cool. Um, so the, the there is a spectrum version out there that you can play in an emulator or a real spectrum as well so that's that's worth looking at because it's slightly different to the version we've got on here uh anything else from here i mean to be fair everything on this card is what we're talking about right because it's all yeah. weird stuff that we never exactly. would have obviously tanzer is yeah. like banging um that's great that's probably from a pure design and gameplay perspective like probably the best game on this cart in terms of like it, it plays the best it feels like a professional product like yeah it's uh so it's just like this really hectic side scroller with kind of shooter elements and i don't want to say roguelike dna because the stages are randomly generated but like it feels very roguelike because your character is extremely fragile and there's branching paths and like yes. the, em the, the emphasis is on repeated runs right yeah. like dying and then starting all over again trying a different path trying a different power upset it's like there's an emphasis on like repeated play which is very satisfying for like a short form game like this because it, 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 you know, games like this, and really the Evercade in general for me is like, the Evercade is something I fire up before work when I have fifteen minutes to kill. Yeah. So yeah. like, games like Tanzer and, and Multitude are perfect for sessions like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And it, it, most of the games on the Mega Catch Studios collection are designed in that way. Um, so like, I, Old Towers is. Um, a, a nice puzzle it uses a similar kind of mechanic to the brainies actually so you can you push in a direction you keep moving until you hit something and in that one you're trying to sort of collect everything on the screen rather than end up in a specific location so that if you enjoy great. yeah so if you enjoyed the brainies that's one worth checking out um there's some interesting sort of twists on um sort of established other retro games as well like this is like creepy brawlers is like a uh, a horror themed punch out which is quite interesting. Um, there's Coffee Crisis, which is quite a well-regarded beat-em-up from a while back. I haven't actually tried that myself yet, but I know that a fair few people had nice things to say about that when it first came out. Um, so yeah, yeah, this, this is a really good cartridge if, if you like interesting and experimental games that aren't necessarily going to last you a long time, but which are interesting technical achievements in some cases uh, and are in other cases quite bold experiments in design for these retro platforms as well so 
yeah, this is definitely a, a, an interesting collection of games to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, the next car in the list then is Pico Interactive, which is uh, one of the one of definitely the most the coolest cartridges in this collection. One of the best value ones. There's like twenty games in here. Uh, yeah. It's also it also has to be said this is the one that is fraught with the most problems as well. So they they've had a real nightmare getting some of these games working properly. And sure. at the time of, at the time of recording, there are still a few bugs in some of the games on here. But uh, all credit to the Evercade team. They are. Uh, making a real effort to do firmware updates to uh, fix a lot of the problems that people have been encountering. They've already fixed the crash problem that people were having with the RPG Brave Battle Saga. Uh, they're working on fixing an issue that Top Racer has uh, with nitro sticking and that sort of thing. So if things don't work perfectly now, then just keep an eye on Evercase uh, social media and stuff and they will let you know when they've sorted stuff out. They are aware of the problems and they are being really good about fixing them. So, Is that all getting uh, addressed through the firmware updates on the console? Is that how they're handling that? Yeah, so, so what happens is you do a firmware update on the console and I think it writes something to the cartridge when you next put the cartridge in. Oh, uh, that's so really it, it fixes the game um, because the, the carts are all flash memory so they're rewritable. Um, so... Yeah, they can they can basically patch the games through firmware updates. I don't I don't know the the mechanics of how it all works, but yeah, they 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 have they have patched several games already uh, in that way. So, all right. So disclaimer aside, uh, what has jumped out at you from the Pico collection so far? Oh, this one could merit its own episode. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, <laughs> uh, games uh, that I've actually played with some time. Um, I, I did. I did actually put some time into Brave Battle Saga, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's more just interesting than it is good. In that it's like a mm-hmm. Chinese, it's like a Taiwanese 16-bit RPG, but it's not particularly good. Um, uh, I thought Tin Head was great. Did you play yeah. Tin Head? I haven't tried that one yet, actually. But yeah, so what's the deal with that one? Tin Head is like this side scroller in like very much what I would call like the Euro fashion. So like big yep. stages that are kind of explorable mm-hmm. um just really pretty sprite work um and you're this robot and you adjust like the 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 angle of your shots to either be like upward trajectory downward trajectory or straight on you have like a button to switch that so like that kind of affects the way you navigate the stages kind of like trying to take out enemies before you get to the platform they're on by like changing like to an upward trajectory it just has a very like high production value feel to it like loads of animation and like really colorful and detailed backgrounds yeah um i mean uh, a lot of the rpgs and stuff on this collection i just haven't had a lot of the time to dig into them that i've wanted to yeah um but one of the things that makes this collection so interesting is some of these games are um taiwanese yes um and have never really been available to English-speaking audiences before. Um, so stuff like Brave Battle Saga, um, Water Margin, um, Canon, Legend of the New Gods, I believe. Um, yeah. And which which is the is Canon the the Shining Force ripoff? Which one is the Shining Force ripoff? That's oh, I forget. Yeah, yeah that's Canon. That's that's mm. I think Canon. Um, but yeah, like a lot of these games are Taiwanese attempts at kind of recreating classics of the 16-bit era for that market. Um, so to be able to play these as someone who appreciates game history and development history is it's just really interesting. It's like mm-hmm. they're not particularly good, 
but they're just interesting from a historical perspective. Like the dollar, like like water margins, a, a Streets of Rage style beat 'em up based on like a Romance of the Three Kingdoms era Chinese history mm-hmm. setting, and like the hit detection's really dodgy and it's like kind of glitchy, but it's it's just fascinating to play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. And, like, I know, like, I just, like, ripped up Interplay games for the same exact thing, but now I'm like, this is, wor- this is worth playing because it's from Taiwan. But, like, it, it is because, like, how often do you get to play a game that was, like, landlocked in Taiwan for 30 years, but yeah. now you get to play it? Like, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's uh, some other interesting stuff that, that Pico have done um, is take games that were um maybe confined to home computer platforms and people have done console ports of them which in turn makes them a bit more accessible and easy to emulate for a lot of people because setting up computer emulators can be a bit trickier than setting up console emulators um and so a good example of that is switchblade yes. uh, which which is a very early core design game um uh that originally came out for atari st and it's probably best known in its atari st incarnation uh, but a few years back, someone ported it to Mega Drive, um, and Pico published that and did a full release of, the, of it with the full support of the original author Simon Phipps, who did some exclusive cover art for it and everything. It's like a lovely, lovely painted cover art that he did for it. Um, yeah, and, and this Mega Drive version is the one that we've got on this Pico Interactive collection. And Switchblade is um, a open structure 2D platformer uh, from sort of the very early days of that style of gameplay. Um, and it's got some interesting and unusual mechanics, um, such as the, the way you attack by holding down the fire button to set how powerful your attack is, and that also corresponds to what move you do if you're doing hand-to-hand combat and so on. So it takes a bit of getting used to, but then as you play it, you start to realize that the, the game is designed around that system, and so it's not like a super-fast action game or anything like that. You can take your time over getting into the right position and charging up your attacks and so on, and you've got this absolutely huge map to explore um that is it it's it's massive but it's not daunting because it's structured really nicely it's designed in such a way that it'll kind of naturally lead you around itself in certain routes but it's still open to you backtracking and exploring and trying to find hidden pathways and so on it's uh it's a game that I, did, I, I didn't play the original Switchblade on the Atari ST back in the day I played its sequel a fair bit which is a uh, a little more um sort of linearly structured um but yeah I can, I can see why this was this was quite a popular and well-received game back in the day because it's another one that's that's ambitious for the time and for the most part i think it succeeds in what it's doing quite well yeah i mean i definitely experimented with it a little bit um i certainly found the uniqueness of the combat off-putting not in such yes. a way that i wouldn't return to it again but in a way such as like i probably need to read a little bit about how i'm supposed to be doing this and then try yes. it again kind yeah. of way yeah but, there is uh, a learning curve for sure yeah but it's curious in the best possible way mm-hmm. yeah um another noteworthy one in there i mean this is a a, a fairly well-known one at this point i think but it's i i, I do want to give a, a bit of an acknowledgement to the immortal as well yes 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 yes. We've, men- <laughs> we've, we've mentioned my love of the immortal on this podcast before yeah specifically yeah. in our gory games episode halloween episode <laughs> yes 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 i mean in a lot of ways as a game the immortal is absolute bullshit because yeah. it's 
it's it's it's unfair it's mean it it doesn't tell you things that you need to know and it just kills you for no reason over and over again but there's something about it that is just it's 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 well worth spending time with it's got a, a unique atmosphere all of its own um it's quite noteworthy and it's a game from that era that's actually got some quite nice writing in it as well yeah because uh, it was quite it's quite unusual to see like prose and dialogue in a lot of games from this era that aren't explicitly rpgs uh but the immortals got some like really evocative prose in it as well to describe things like the dreams your character has and the things that you come across in your explorations and so on and then there's the ridiculously gory aspect as well in all the combat <laughs> i just remember <laughs> as a child being afraid of this game yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like it has a, it's not overtly scary in like a horror sense, but there's like a certain oppressiveness to its atmosphere and sound design and visuals. Yeah. It's very much like uh, one wonders if like the Dark Souls people played Immortal, like yeah. you know, like yeah. it's it's got that kind of feel, it's like this dark fantasy where like everything just feels like it's too much, too oppressive. Yeah. It, it, it is that knowledge that the, the game could kill you at any moment and probably will kill you at any moment. Yes. Because there, there you, you walk into a new room in The Immortal and you don't know what to expect. You don't know if there's going to be a pit trap there or if there's going to be like a huge worm is going to jump out of the, out of the floor and eat you. Um, the only time you really get a sort of warning of that is like in the first room where if you stand still for too long, you get a little message on the screen saying you might want to move. And then if you don't, you get eaten by a giant worm. <laughs> yeah yeah ah uh, but yes yes that 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 is a fun one to explore and revisit even if it is a absolute nightmare to get through but um <laughs> yeah it's satisfying when you do manage to get when you do manage to solve a level though and it's it's relatively short as well so if you can get your head around the mechanics and know what to look for and you're willing to put some time into it it shouldn't take you too long to get all the way through and it's it's an yeah. experience worth having for sure and like name another game where you get to play as a wizard and just tap an enemy on the head with your wand and then they <laughs> explode <laughs> it does make you wonder why he doesn't just do that at the start of any fight though yeah oink <laughs> done oink done like yeah to everything oh dear anyway yes anything else from pico you want to bring up now or, or uh, do you want to save it for a, like a dedicated pico episode yeah it might be worth it to do like a dedicated pico episode later down the line specifically mm. as far as the rpgs go um yeah, you sure. know stuff like uh, dragon view and draken uh, are so curious that they almost demand being yeah. dissected with a lot yeah. more scrutiny yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people really, really, genuinely like Dragon View from the yes. sound of things. Like yes, just talking, talking to people in the Evercade Discord, as like Draken has has lots of its own issues, but like Dragon View, people seem to really genuinely be enjoying. So yeah, no, Dragon's uh, Dragon's a mess, an ambitious yeah. mess, but Dragon View is genuinely cool. It's a cool yeah. game. All right, uh, let's move on then to the Technos collection, which is the last of the launch lineup. Then, so this is um, this is your Double Dragon games, your River City Ransom, your Super Dodgeball, and your Renegade, and that sort of thing. So most of these games are pretty well known, I'd say. But yeah. so, um, yeah, which which ones in particular uh, have, have caught your attention so far? Yeah, this is really the only collection that didn't have anything weird on it, right? Like, yeah. These are all fairly expected games, um, but mm -hmm. I had never played Super Double Dragon before. 
Yeah. So I was I was really grateful for that opportunity. I mean, but like I don't really have much to say about it because like what can be said about Double Dragon that hasn't been said into the ground? Like mm-hmm. yes, they invented uh, Technos invented and perfected the beat 'em up genre as we know it. Super Double Dragon is just a very good example of a 16-bit <laughs> 16-bit beat 'em up. It, yeah. It's competently made, beautiful sprite work, great sound design, satisfying hit detection. Like it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, for me, the thing worth mentioning about this collection is that, uh, much like the Kunio Kun collection they did a while back, they've deliberately gone for the um, the console releases of the early Double Dragon games rather than the sure. arcade ones. Um, and the the NES versions of those two Double Dragon games in particular are very interesting because they're not straight ports of the arcade machine. Right. Like the the first Double Dragon, for example, is, has uh, an early example of a leveling system where yeah. you, as you fight through the game. You unlock new moves by leveling up your character, and there's platforming bits that don't really work. And <laughs> God, um, those goddamn conveyor belts! Oh God, yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing I've discovered the distinct joy of uh, since starting to cover some of these things is um, Technos sp- uh, Technos sprites on the NES in a damage state. <laughs> because all they seem to do for them is they just basically take the existing sprite and then they just seem to sort of scrunch it up. Yeah. And it, it just makes for these fantastically expressive sprites that just look absolutely ridiculous. And you, you, you just don't notice them during the game, but like you do a freeze frame of some, you view punching someone in the face in Renegade and something, and you're like, what what is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like their face like sucks in on it. <laughs> no. Nobody loves punching things in the face more than Technos. Like, they yeah. <laughs> perfected the face punch. <laughs> but it's like, even, like, you know, one of the things we talked about when we did our beat-em-up episodes is how integral sound design and hit detection are to yeah. beat-em-ups. And how, like, if you make a beat-em-up and it doesn't feel good to punch something, then you've made a bad beat-em-up. Yes. And, like, yeah, just absolutely. even, like, the even like going as far back as Double Dragon 1, just to... Like, like the feeling yeah. of connecting that punch is great yeah. like it's so good it's so good <laughs> it's it's meaty and like satisfying like they, these guys are the best they're the best of the best at this and like obviously yeah. dodge super dodgeball my god let's fuse beat em up sensibilities with a sports t- with a competitive sports title yes please make dodgeball fun again <laughs> all right good stuff okay so we've gone through uh the complete launch lineup there at the time of recording um the the next four evercade cartridges are on the way so there's uh xena crisis and tanglewood coming up next those are two um two modern releases for the mega drive uh the oliver twins collection which is a bunch of dizzy games and some of codemasters other early stuff and to Atari Lynx collection. So uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, um, Xenocrisis and Tanglewood and the Oliver Twins are coming in October, I think, and then Lynx stuff in November. Um, so we'll almost certainly return to those at some point, and we'll have a look at the Pico Interactive collection in a bit more detail as well when we've spent some more time with some of the more substantial games that are in there. Okay, before we wrap up, anything else you want to uh, bring up? No, just, uh, you know... I'm not paid to say this, but you need to own an Evercade, everybody. Yes, definitely, <laughs> like, definitely. I would, uh, I would get behind that as well. So it's a great system. It's got great games for it, and uh, I, I, I can't say this enough. But Blaze have been brilliant at supporting it as well. So uh, hang out in the official Evercade Discord if you've got any questions or any concerns about any of the games or the hardware itself. 
be sure to talk to them because they this sounds like such a like a, a corporate line you get on thing but they re- they really are listening to people and taking action on uh, sort of the most glaring issues that have come up as well so um yeah be sure to involve yourself with the community if you uh, if you uh, want to talk to some like-minded retro gamers uh, I th- yeah i think uh, it's important just from a sensibility standpoint like the obviously all video games are made for money right it's like a for-profit <laughs> yeah. industry but like something boutique like the evercade unlike uh, Sony or Nintendo or Microsoft like this feels like this was made for me yeah this, yeah this yeah. doesn't feel like it was made to make money this feels like this was made because they had a great idea that they thought would provide a service to the community and they thought it was a viable economic model but it, mm-hmm. uh, but like it doesn't feel like they're trying to wheedle me for money it feels like they're trying to make a legitimate project tailored to a specific sensibility and I, it just happens to be my sensibility. <laughs> so yeah, I appreciate yeah. <laughs> this product. Yeah, same. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Um, yeah, so if you want to know a bit more about the Evergate and any of the games on it, uh, I've got a dedicated Evergate section on Moe Gamer. You can get at it from the top navigation menu. Um, what I've also got on there is uh, where I could find them. I've provided links to PDFs of the original game manuals as well. Uh, so if the if the you do get a manual with each Evercade cartridge, but it's just like a little bit of information about each game and the basic controls. So if you want to know a bit more about how to play the games or the context or like the full controls or full details about it as well, I've got links to um, PDFs of these manuals where they exist as well. They don't exist for everything because uh, some of these games are prototypes or unreleased or have only only come out on the evercade so far so uh, it's not available for absolutely everything but i've managed to find most of um most of the manuals for these games as well so be sure to check that out if you want to know a bit more as well all right before we wrap up then uh would you like to tell people where to find you online sure you can always check out my artwork at mrgilderpixels.com and please uh, consider following me on instagram at mrgilderpixels uh, i also have a twitch stream uh these days mrgilderpixels uh is my name on there too where i'm going to start trying to uh, live stream some of my digital artwork when i uh, when the mood strikes me so please uh, add that to your follow list too if you're active on twitch great stuff and as always you can find all my writing on mowegame.net and my youtube stuff at youtube.com forward slash pete davison uh if you're listening to this podcast on soundcloud uh or spotify or any of the other services it's on uh, you can find a video version of this podcast over on youtube where you can see footage of everything we've talked about and if you're watching this on youtube there is also an audio only feed that you can subscribe to via various means as well so you can get load that into your mp3 player or phone of choice and uh, just listen on the go which is nice anyway just remains for us to say as always thank you very much for watching and or listening and we'll see you again next time Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game. 
so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.